Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Moralia Python Radio. Tonight, I feel complete because <laughs> my other half is with me. <laughs> I. Well, thank you for having me. I've never been on this kind of a program before. I mean, I don't really know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Business as usual. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Um, tonight's show is uh, one that's been in the works for months. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, I have to give a shout out to Ian Bissell for uh, helping hook this up. Um, is that why he linked us on our it's – always, it's always an episode that I know Ian had something to do with because – Right before we start, it's like Ian Bissell has posted a link to your Facebook page. I'm like, what do you do? And it's like an advertisement for the show where he tags everybody under the green earth in it. And it's like, <laughs> ah, so now, now I know. So, yeah, so we're going to be talking with Forrest Fanning from Rep Tech. Rep, Rep Tech. Um, yep. Man, he has an uh, awesome collection of. Uh, chondros and emerald tree boas and all kinds of stuff and we're gonna be talking crocs nice. uh trip to indonesia a trip to ham germany uh you know reptiles uh breeding as, as a business and uh, all kinds of stuff plus there's some crazy colubrids which i'm not even going to attempt to try to pronounce these names but um, I thought that would be up your alley, uh, Owen, because yeah, uh-huh. they are pretty cool. Like that one that I put in the outline was like, yeah. Like, what the hell uh, is that? What I, color would you even... say that? It's like uh, red and <laughs> like red blue? and blue. Blue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's pretty wild. That is pretty so we're, cool. Yeah, we're gonna we'll get him on on in a in a couple minutes. Uh, but uh, I guess since you weren't here last week, what's new with you? <laughs> I was not. I I I literally was wandering around uh, my house because I was on vacation, went down to South Carolina, and came home. And uh, it was one of those like I came home late, 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 late on Monday, and had to go to work on Tuesday. So it was it was a really weird day. So <laughs> I'm wandering around my place, and I'm like, I have to get ready for the show. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sitting down. And I'm like, you're not on the show tonight. Oh, this is weird. So yeah, isn't like, it weird, those, man? Yeah, didn't even listen to the show because I'm like, hey, you said it was going to be an NPR free night, so it's an NPR free night. So I haven't listened to the episode yet. Um, I didn't call in like I usually do, just a freaking hassle when I'm not on. So it was just weird. So yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's really it's really strange when you sort of like don't do this on a Tuesday night. I know. <laughs> it's like come uh, our lives. It's like yeah. yeah wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but um, other than that, it was, uh, you know, uh, basically this week uh, started finalizing all the stuff because uh, before you know it, we're going to be right on Tinley Park. So, yeah, dude, we're like three weeks away, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, Shit, um, man, that came quick. Yeah, I know. I'm going out uh, Friday to get a new show bucket that will be smaller and have wheels. Oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) See, it only takes me like four years to do stuff, okay? So, you know. I think you were trying to – 
I think you were trying to smuggle hobbits in that show bucket thing that Just you had. Just because I could put you and Rob in there comfortably, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't understand. It would almost be like that uh, thing in Game of Thrones that they carried the king around in. You know exactly, what I mean? just <laughs> walk in. Yeah, I don't know why I'm paying. I don't know why we're paying for a ticket for you. We just need to get you in the bin, wheel you in. I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Uh, God damn it. Damn but it. um, yeah, I got to do that. I got to do other things. I got a a bunch of brand new T-shirts and stickers because Ian Bissell was like. Stickers. Like, do you have rogue reptile stickers? And I'm like, no. And he goes, you should have rogue reptile stickers. I'm like, fine. So I went and I got rogue reptile stickers. I did not, and I will admit, look at the measurements before I ordered said stickers. They're a little oh, tiny. <laughs> I'm like, nice. crap. So you can have as many as you want, but they're like the size of temporary tattoos. So whatever. Yeah, um, I think one of the uh, I should mention this real quick because I yeah. kind of stopped mid sentence because I was I was excited that you're back. You know what I mean? So <laughs> kind of flustered a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, no, uh, I was listening to uh, Forrest on uh, Snakes and the Fat Man, and uh, right. yeah, it was a pretty cool episode. So if you didn't get a chance to check that out, check that out. It's uh, it's pretty cool, but. Um, I like uh, how they were talking about like the reptile business and, you know, <laughs> it was pretty funny how people who do this as a business, like if they ran any other type of business would like totally fail at, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, they don't run it as a business at all. And it's just like a total, uh, total shit show. But, um, uh, but, but th- it, I always like talking that side of it because you don't get to talk to a lot of people that are experienced in what I call like a lot of people that we talk to are into, you know, uh, you know, like a niche part of the hobby, but like, right. you know, when you're talking to some of these guys that are, are more experienced with a more, um, you know, diverse, uh, reptile, um, experience, I guess, in the hobby is, uh, is is always a is always a cool insight um but uh yeah it's it's funny how he was talking about i mean i don't know about you owen but when i was first starting out um ralph davis and like looking at his website and his birthing mm-hmm. records and his videos and the rat barn and all that shit was really cool funny thing is is that yeah. he was at icast with us somewhere um, Dude, just, but I don't listen, remember meeting him. The first day of ICAST, I probably remember parts of it, and then you left me alone <laughs> yeah, for seminars, and I started drinking with Howard. So I don't even want to. I that was bad news, right? It was. It was a bad, <laughs> bad stuff happened. So right. yeah. So so before we get them on, I got two things that I want to hit. Well, first Go thing is it. is that. I want to make sure that we uh, – anybody that's interested in the Northwest Carpet Fest, don't forget, that's this Saturday. Um, oh, get, God. Get, get in contact with Doug Taylor because um, uh, it's at his place, and he's hosting it, and um, he'll be able to tell you, uh, you know, more details. But uh, definitely worth uh, checking out if you're out there on the West Coast. Uh, take a trip up. Take a trip down. Whatever you got to do, take – just take a trip out there if you uh, if you can, and um, you know there, there's always there's always the cool guys out there. Who knows? Maybe yep. uh, I don't know. I'm assuming Nick is going, but sometimes Ryan Young's there, Casey Lazik. 
uh, you know, who else? Who else? Owen? Yep. Who else is out there on the West Coast? Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm blanking uh, right now. I don't know why I'm blanking, but I'm sure. I'm sure probably like Mark Goyer goes there. I would imagine yeah. that he does. But you know, yeah. those West Coast guys definitely worth uh, checking it out. The other thing is, is that I guess we'll get into more details at the end of the show when we're closing out. But I just want to make sure that people heard this at the beginning. Is that oh, crap. I have it. Well, I told you about this. Is that I, I know, new... which is why I'm waiting for the storm, is that we're going to tease them now and then get into more detail later and just kind of imagine there'll be some people freaking out about it. But go ahead. So. I'm, I'm, always, I'm always trying to, you know, make this hobby uh, fun and things that people talk about become reality. You know, example would be Carpet Fest. Um, yep. But uh, – you know, we talk about going to Herp Australia all the time, uh, yes. but why not just Herp um, in in our area? Yeah, and, U.S. You know, um, <laughs> in the U.S. We've got tons of stuff to see. So what I'm trying to do is put together a small group of people. Um, and, you know, I, I would imagine this would be springtime, uh, but to, uh, to head out to an area um, – have a target species that we're trying to find, so to speak, and try to find it. Now, maybe that would be camping. Maybe that would be in a hotel. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, but uh, actually I would prefer to be for it to be camping, but it is what it is. Um, yes. I just think it would be really cool. I mean, there's tons of places we could go, you know, uh, Everglades would be one Arizona. Me and Rob were talking about Arizona. There's some cool, small rattlesnakes and such out there that would be nice. uh, really neat coming across. Um, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, there's, there's so much stuff to see and, and make it sort of like a, a yearly thing. And, uh, you know, I think it would be cool. So, you know, obviously we can't take as many people, I guess we could, <laughs> but that could be. It's going to be tromping through the woods looking for stuff. Yeah, well. <laughs> that could be craziness, but. Uh, well, it also yeah. travel constraints and people might not be able to get there. So it's one of those, like, if this is something you would be interested in, we will definitely let everybody know when we camera out what we're looking for, where we're going to go, and what dates would work out best. And, of course, whoever can make it is more than welcome to join us. Um you'll just probably have to, you know, pay your own way and stuff like that. Uh, and of course, oh, you're, not not, pay, you're not, you're not paying for them. Listen, listen, <laughs> Mr. Moneybags, if anybody's paying here, you know, also you have to not die. I mean, like if we're going out for venomous and you get bit, I will leave you to die in the woods. So, you know, that is just, you know, establish that. All right. You know, fair enough. Yeah. Good enough. So, but yeah, I I like this idea, especially because, you know, we live in a state where, you know, you don't really think about it, but we kind of do have a little bit of a, uh, some nice herp stuff to go after with the timbers and the copperheads as well as hellbenders. And then if you even want to go into the pine pine barrens in New Jersey to go check stuff out, you can find some cool stuff there too. Yeah. Timber rattlesnakes are are one that I would really love to see for sure. That's that's on my uh, bucket list because they're just cool snakes. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of like, I'm really getting into photography. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I thought it would be awesome just to get out there and check things out and, you know, totally would. 
and 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 have another aspect of the hobby, uh, not just you know keeping snakes in a box. Even though that's cool, I'm not saying it's not, but you know what I mean. So yes, I got you. So anyway, uh, and oh yeah, one last thing. Uh, Casey is hard at work on the calendars, so we oh. will have them uh, hopefully by Tinley. I know we we it's cutting it close, but I oh, have God. faith that, that he'll be able to <laughs> that he'll be able to pull it off. Uh, it's all right, so, we can always give him the the ho- the name of the hotel to ship him to if we get real real close. So yeah. um, so I don't know. I don't have anything else. We can get Forrest on here and get this going. So uh, yeah, we got tons of Do stuff it. to hit on. So let's go. Hey, Forrest. Welcome to Morelli Python Radio. Glad to have you. How are you doing? Doing good. How are you guys? Uh, awesome. We're doing fine. So, uh, Forrest, why don't you um, jump in and tell us what got you started in reptiles and uh, what are what, what's your collection like now? All right, I'll do that. And uh, just make sure you guys jump in and stop me if I keep going too long because uh, – I'm sure you know, uh, after talking to my buddy Cody or listening to my other podcasts, we can, uh, <laughs> both, both of us have a, have a, have a tendency to just keep going and going. So you're um, our favorite guest. You guys are going to have to. That's guess. fine. We don't know. Those are the perfect guests. <laughs> Please <Yep>. speak. <laughs> oh man. Well, I mean, you know, like, like anybody, um, you guys, you know, have on and ask that question. I mean, I, w- I was always into all kinds of animals as a little kid and, out there herping and catching snakes and turtles and stuff like that. I grew up in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. I was born and raised. And, uh, you know, I, as you guys know, uh, Reptile Gardens, you guys had Terry Phillip on. Um mm-hmm. place I went to school was just literally like a few blocks from there. Um, and they used to bring Galapagos tortoises and baby alligators and the place next to the next to them called bear country would bring in baby bear cubs into, you know, kindergarten and, and first grade. I remember them doing that and just being blown away by that. And, uh, so it, you know, it was a, a cool place to grow up and, uh, having places like that in, in my backyard definitely, uh, just fueled the fire a little bit more. And, um, I, I kept some snakes, in, in middle school and in high school years, I had Burmese pythons and bull snakes and stuff like that. And, uh, it wasn't until later when, uh, I started to get back into it around 18, 19. Um, my now wife, Desiree, we've been together since high school, since we were 16. And, uh, she ended up deciding to go to school out at university, Nevada, Reno. And, uh, around that time I was getting real serious about herps and, uh, I was working in sales and saving up my money and looking for stuff to, to do with the money I was making. And, uh, and I went and I visited Lindy Johnson from freedom breeder and, Mm -hmm. uh, went, went out there to see his place. And, uh, it was just like the most amazing day ever. I mean, he was really big into ball pythons already at this point, but he was really big into uh, central American boas and, I was wanting to do a lot with rodents. So that's why I went out there to see the equipment and he was selling feed and stuff. And, uh, just had this massive operation. I mean, there was 
you know, he's building racks in the warehouse. There's all these side rooms, and he's breeding rodents. And if you've ever met Lindy, I mean, the guy just, you know, you can see his smile from a mile away. He has tons of energy. He's got the best stories. And uh, he's just taken us through the collection. And these Central American bows are just, like, biting him on his arms and biting him, you know, <laughs> biting him on the neck. And he's just laughing about it like it's nothing. And, you know, then he starts showing us the ball pythons, and he's talking about all this crazy big money. And, uh and I had already, you know, been reading the, the Ralph Davis journals and kind of learning about the ball python thing and seeing all these big price tags and uh, and and playing with my calculator like everybody does and just dreaming of uh, of all these great things I could do with these ball pythons. And so once once yeah once once that that day was through, I was hooked. I mean, I was a hundred percent in, and I started traveling to every show I could and listening to you know anything i could on you know going to talks and herp societies and things like that and uh and then it was about a year or two later um down in vegas that i went to visit you know cody told the story on his podcast about there's like this really sketchy flea market and i heard there's a, a snake uh you know like a little retail uh pet store inside this flea market mm-hmm. i mean it was sketchy and uh and so like right when i walk up to this you know eight by 10 reptile show sized retail place called the snake shop. Um, I see Cody standing there with the reptile garden shirt and uh, we just hit it off right away. And, you know, before then I I had a year or two of of really pursuing my reptile business before that moment of meeting Cody, but meeting Cody, I would say was probably the most significant thing that ever happened to me in reptiles. And, and Cody was in a position where, you know, he had been in venomous, and he was just trying to find other things he could do to keep him busy until he could basically have venomous again. But, uh, you know, it was so significant for me because not only did we get along and, and quickly became best friends, but Cody had real knowledge and skills in raising reptiles. And so he, you know, he had all, all of the important tools I needed to become a success by being able to, to tease feed animals or keep animals healthy. And, you know, he taught me, how to actually go out and, and field herp and catch things and find things and, you know, how to force feed this or, you know, he, he just knows so much. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so basically the both of us, we both just had so much energy and so much excitement for it that, you know, just being around each other and, and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, sometimes being competitive or sometimes, you know, just criticizing each other and ripping each other to shreds for stuff like that really, uh, that that really started to catapult it into a serious thing and and you know making it making the dream a reality and and going towards wanting to do it for a living and and live a life of only doing this and so um you know he it's like we would uh go ahead I'll let you guys say something <laughs> no, no, no man you're, you're good, good. <laughs> you're fine keep rolling man no it's good so, um, I mean, was that like what kickstarted everything to actually pursue it as a career? Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, we we both wanted to, and uh, and and Cody had really, I think Cody growing up, his dream was to work in the zoo field, and right. then um, I I would always make fun of that and say, oh, zoo, zoos are stupid. They don't know, you know. I I really didn't like zoos, so I would I would make fun of that, and I was like, we need to breed rodents and we need to breed ball pythons and chondros <laughs> and stuff, and and uh, you know, so um, you know, because I always looked at the the zoo guys as being anti 
private sector. And I, I had a few bad experiences early on outside of Terry Phillip, you know, more AZA kind of guys that, you know, we, me and Cody, I remember we went to a few zoos and, you know, we met this, uh, this, you know, bitchy face zoo curator that was just like, I don't think people should keep things in, you know, in captivity. And she's standing behind a glass, or, you know, a glass of wall of cages of things being kept right. in captivity. And I'm like, how dare what, what? she say that to us? Like, why her and not us? I don't understand it, you know? And, uh, and so that, that was really funny. So, um, and I, you know, it was funny too, cause you know, and it's not much different now, but like, even though Cody knew it all about a lot of things with reptiles and I didn't, I thought I knew it all. And I would argue with him about everything and just talk about how great ball pythons were and this and that. And, uh, but we both, we both got into chondros like right at the same time, which was like right when we met and, uh, and we pursued that really hard. And then all, all along, I was really all about rodents and ball pythons. And, um, and so, you know, we, uh, we just kind of worked at it and uh, we, you know, we, we, we had a little rodent barn uh, there in Nevada that we built up and, uh, and we started buying animals together and, and that went on for a long time um, until we decided to move out to Florida and pursue the dream in Florida. Cause that's where everybody was at. And, uh, and that we just felt like if we moved out to Florida, that was, that was the right step to make. And it was in our early twenties and uh, we got out to, I got out to Florida first and started going to reptile shows and getting myself established. Um, you know, just getting a, a non-reptile job for a while there at, in the beginning. And uh, I was at a Repticon and I met uh, one of my good friends, Robbie Kezzy from Glades Herp. And I uh, started hanging out at his place and he was working on a pilot for a TV show for Discovery Channel. And they had tons of species. I mean, he had a ton, of, you know, he's got a, like a 40 acre farm and uh, it's Tom Crutchfield's old, old place. And mm. Robbie ha has a lifetime of reptile experience, and, and he's made a living at it most of his life as well. So, um, you know, he's originally from Ohio, so he was around all the guys in Ohio that, you know, really built our reptile industry to what it is, you know, Mark Bell, Bob Ashley. Uh, you know, the, the list just goes on and on how that was really like the vortex of what became the reptile industry and commercial breeding. So... Robbie was just a, an amazing guy to me and he took me all around the country and um, we got to go out to the Anaheim show in an RV and uh, herp the whole way through Texas and visit oh, the awesome. Chiricahua. De oh, it was, it was incredible. I mean, literally like a, a whole RV full of guys wanting to go field herping and it was like, you know, wrapped in an exoterra wrap and there's cameras and all this stuff. <laughs> and so <laughs> he, uh, he, yeah, he was, he was just so fun. And I remember like we go to Texas and we get out at this rest area that Robbie says is like really good for herping. And we get out and we step out and we literally step over an Aatrox and oh, uh, oh, wow. like, like <laughs> right at the rest area. And um, we found all kinds of stuff on that trip. I mean, um, Senecolis, tri Triaspis intermedius, the, uh, the Western green rat snake. Um, we found a lot of Mexican, uh, Mexican hognose snakes and, yeah, I mean, it was it was unbelievable all the different things we've seen on the trip. And then going to the Chiricahua Desert Museum was a, a really big moment as well. I don't know if you guys have heard about it, but uh, Bob Ashley, who runs the Tinley Park show, he's got this incredible museum out there. And there's both living specimens as well as, like, it's a, it's a herp history museum. So, like, oh, cool. there's a whole section. 
Yeah, there's a whole section dedicated to Grace Olive Wiley, a famous uh, zoologist, and there's letters from her and all these really cool pictures and um, just a lot of, like, real um, herp history memorabilia. And then Bob has, like, an amazing personal collection. He's really into montane rock rattlesnakes and and uh, a lot of just uh, Mexican uh, rare, cool, rare Mexican herps and uh, – and he's also, you know, like uh, some some of these guys that have been doing this their whole life, they have, you know, there's a few of them like him and Dave Barker where they have studies with like seriously rare hurt books. And uh, I think that's really cool. That's something I want to get into in the future is is collecting, you know, rare rare literature and stuff that uh, it's really cool because it's, it's herp related and it's super rare, but it can't die. So there's like all these, all these books that are worth uh, – yeah, I mean, some of these books are worth ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, and uh, and these, wow. you know, him and Dave Barker both have just unbelievable collections of uh, rare herp literature. So that was cool, cool. Trying to get myself back back on track here. So uh, so yeah, just being at uh, at Glade's Herp Farm was was really cool. Um, you know, when I when I was younger, I was really into filmmaking, and that's that's what I wanted to do when I, when I was growing up was I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. And, uh, so that was a big reason of why I was hanging around with Robbie too. I was doing a lot of cinematography and I was kind of trying to pursue that dream and around this time. And, and, you know, what Robbie was filming for as well, I I realized that my dream of filming PBS nature type, uh, documentaries was no longer needed with, uh, you know, with the Gator boys and with, uh, with all this amazing content that uh, became reality TV, nobody really wanted to see any nature documentaries anymore. They just wanted to see hillbillies, you know, blowing, blowing the brains out of alligators and, uh, right. Hunting Sasquatch. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. You know, like, you know, educational stuff on, uh, on ancient aliens and stuff like that became, um, the, the new thing. So I kind of moved away from, uh, from wanting to be a filmmaker, but, um, you know, I, all along this time, I, I was building, a, you know, building a rodent business and, and that was a big part of what I was into and what I wanted to do because I knew that I would be able to make a living working with reptiles, but I needed to do the rodents because that was something that was consistent and I could tell from, you know, visiting other facilities that, that were doing it and, uh, you know, like Ralph Davis or Lindy from Freedom Breeder or the Snake Keeper a lot of the guys that I was seeing that were doing it, um, even, you know, uh, Terry Phillip, a lot of mm-hmm. people that were doing it were doing the dirty work on the side that nobody wanted to do and supplementing it with that consistency, you know, feeding their own collection and then selling some of the surplus to cover their own costs. And uh, so that's kind of why I went that direction. And it, it's, you know, it took me a long time to get to the, the place where I, you know, where I was consistently making enough money to where I could stop and just go full time with this. And that point was around 24, 25. Um, so I've, I'm 32 now. So I've been, you know, full time for about seven years now. And um, I've had a, a, you know, like a full time staff, I think right now we're at five or five employees, five or six is kind of where we fluctuate. And uh, I've been, cool. you know, employing people and doing it full time for, like I said, about seven years now. So it's, uh, it's been a pretty, pretty wild ride. Awesome. awesome. Is it true that rodents are the way to make 
I mean, we say it all the time, but me and Owen joke about breeding rodents instead of breeding snakes to make money in the reptile business. <laughs> I mean, is that is that somewhat true? Um, you know, I I wouldn't say it's true, no, because the the failure rate in rodents is astounding. You know, mm, really, it's almost uh, yeah, just like it is in 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 reptiles. I mean we go to these reptile shows and we see, you know, you go to Tinley park or one of these bigger shows where we see hundreds of people with tables vending. And you could say those are reptile businesses, but those aren't reptile businesses. They're not in the green. They're not generating a profit. That's, that's a hobby that, you know, they're dumping a lot of money into, but really if you Mm -hmm. went through and, and uh, you looked at it all on a spreadsheet, if you looked at, you know, 90% of ball Python people on a spreadsheet, they are not, uh, making a living at it and they're not generating a profit they're trading a lot they're always reinvesting and they they might put it out there like they're they're making a living but i think it's it's very very difficult to do that with uh with reptiles and with rodents it is too and uh that that's something i say a lot to people when i'm talking about you know starting a business or how you can make it in this is it can take you a long time to figure out you're not making money right and uh Yep, and in, in rodents especially, you know, you got to figure out all the different costs you have involved from your feed, your bedding, obviously those are basic, your power, um, if you're delivering, you know, you've got um, all the logistics involved in that, and uh, so you can you can kind of get yourself caught in this uh, this this mouse wheel of money going out, money coming in, you're you're moving along, and I guess you could say you're making a living, but you're working so hard you don't even really notice if uh <laughs> if if you're uh if you're really doing that well and at a certain point i think a lot of people with it are like oh my god i'm working 100 hours a week i have a few hundred bucks at the end of the week left to my name i'm doing okay but god this isn't worth it i want to go back to <laughs> my job and um and then in reptiles you know it's it's different because a lot of the guy and and the worst thing that can happen to you in, in reptiles or in rodents, is coming in with a lot of money. I mean, when you right. see people come in with a lot of money into this business, it's almost guaranteed failure. I mean, every, every year or two in, in ball pythons, you know, there's, there, there was always like a new big money guy, and they would come in and they'd be like, we're taking over, we're buying everything. Um, we, you know, we were successful in this business, so we're going to just – these guys aren't going to know what hit them. Yeah. And every time – every time they fall flat on their face because, and it's something I like about this business is money, does, money can't buy you experience and nope. money's not going to prevent you from making the mistakes that are going to take you out, you know, and there's so many of those, there's so many variables and there's so many things that you can do wrong in this business. Rather you don't quarantine right and you get hit with a, a virus or a disease or some nasty parasite or you cook all your animals, you know, you go out and you spend all this big money and, um, you know, your thermostat fails and you don't have a backup and you cook everything or mm-hmm. you get robbed or your zoning's not right. Or there's like so many different things that can go wrong. And so, um, that's, and I don't even know if I'm on topic anymore or not. <laughs> no, you're <laughs> you know, fine, man. That, no, no, it's fine. Yeah. Cruise. Doesn't the topic yep. is what you um, wish. Yeah. <laughs> yep. For sure. But, uh, but, you know, that's, that's one thing is I think like taking it slow. And that was one thing I did. Um, not that I wasn't spending money and buying stuff right away, 
but I spent a lot of time going and seeing other people's facilities. I spent a lot of time. So did Cody. We used to listen to every single podcast, whether it was reptile radio, you guys, I mean, every single one, we'd listen to it. And a lot of them, we'd listen to them over and over again. And, uh, you know, I remember I've, I've said, I think I might've said it something similar on the other podcast, but it always cracks me up when I say to some of my breeder friends, like, Oh, you should listen to this podcast. And they're like, well, dude, that's like two hours. You know, I'm not going to spend that time listening to that. And it's like, Hey man, this is other guys that are doing it for a living or they're successful breeders and they're giving out information. Like you should really suck up that information and you should do the same thing by going and visiting their facilities and kind of seeing the ins and outs of it. And uh, reptile shows were another thing that were just huge for me. I mean, there was a while where I was like driving to every single Repticon, you know, I was just like any Repticon I could get to, I would, you know, I had a Prius at the time cause that's how I could go to them all really cheap. And, uh, mm-hmm. I would just drive to every, every Repticon I could and be shaking hands with people and meeting people. And, uh, and you know, a lot of that became my Rolodex for, for people that I, I do business with and, and friends, friends with to this day. So just like getting out there and doing that versus, uh, you know, sometimes uh, guys will get in, say you're getting into carpet pythons mm-hmm. and you feel like the best way for you to become established in carpet pythons is to go and spend some money with everybody and that'll make <laughs> them your friends. And that'll, you know, that, that, that'll, uh, that, that'll get you in and it, it might, you know, but uh, I, I would recommend not doing that and, uh, and just saving your money and just trying to get to know the market. If carpet pythons is what you want to do, go around, visit everybody, learn everything you can about them and save up a big chunk of money and then, and wait for that opportunity to, to find the right animals. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's, that's not advice really people want to hear though. You know, like people, yeah. <laughs> people want to hear, they, they want to hear basically, well, I'm going to, I'm going to breed these and this clutch is going to have this many babies and they're playing with their calculator the whole time and then I'm going to sell them for this much. And whenever people say that to me, like they're mm-hmm. like, well, they're, they're this much this year. I'll sell all my offspring next year for this much. Whatever they're saying, in my mind, I'm like, if you can sell them first. If like, you can sell them for that much. Good them. luck. Yeah. Yep. Which, which you're probably too lazy to do that. Put any effort into it. You know, you're not going to go out there and actually do sales, you know, like, like mm-hmm. the guys that make it do. Um, mm-hmm you're just, you're, you're going to put them up. You're going to be mad that nothing sells. And then you're just going to end up wholesaling them for next to nothing. So you're saying that $500 snake you bought, you're going to sell babies next year for 400. And I'm sitting there in my mind, like you'll be, you know, if that was my calculator that I was dreaming with, I would say $75, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. Y- yep. You got to take a big and, jump uh, out of it. Yeah. And, and people, because they, you know, in that number that, that they're dreaming of, it could be that amount of money if they're willing to do the work. If you're one mm-hmm. of those guys where you genuinely bust your ass to make sales. And, and when I say something like that, look at Nick Mutton. You know, that, that's <laughs> one of the guys I'm talking about there. He's right. a guy, he's, he's not sitting around there waiting for his snakes to sell. He's marketing them right. And if, you, if he gets you on the phone, you know, he's going he's yeah, to definitely dangerous. make sure you don't want to buy one of his snakes. I'm not saying he's. Uh, a guy that's pushing his snakes on people. I'm saying he's a guy that's genuinely, when you say, um, when you were saying in the intro, like a lot of guys wouldn't make it in any, in any other business. Nick is a guy that would, you know, yeah. because mm-hmm. he's, 
he's a professional. He is asking people to buy, and he's following up and trying to push um, animals to the right customers who bought from him in the past because he knows, hey, they're they're a serious buyer. Maybe they'd be interested in this. So he's got, you know, he's got a phone list, and he's calling guys back, and you know, he's shooting out emails all the time, and so he's he's getting good money for his animals because he put that work in. But right. most people don't want to do that. And most people don't want to be married to it the way you have to, to succeed in a reptile business. I mean, they, they want to think they can go out and travel and, and enjoy life and do all these other things and have enough animals to make a living with. And that doesn't happen. You know, it's like you're, you're literally married to it and can't get away with it once you get to a certain level. And it's, it's very stressful and, I think a lot of people drop out, you know, just burning out and uh, due to the stress also. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like people don't spend – it's funny. We can't even get them to come to a carpet fest, and then they complain that they yeah. can't sell their snakes. You know what I mean? Like what better way to, uh, you know – Market yourself. Uh, or Market yourself or get to know people, you know, because I think people think – that you can just get in here, have a pretty snake and it's going to sell. But like Nick told me early on, he's like, dude, nobody's going to spend $10,000 with you if they don't know who you are. Like they're just not. So. Yep. Unless what you have is really, really good. Yeah. It has to be that <laughs> right. amazing. Yeah. 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 Even then, somebody will buy it. It'll be one of the guys who's going to take that $10,000 snake and read it to his, secret $10,000 snakes and then make a ton more money than you ever could. So, you know, but that's that, you know? Yep. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with animals. I mean, you have to realize everybody has the same thing. I mean, when you, whenever you're buying that new thing from that breeder who's established, you think you're the only guy that's getting it, but that's never the case. You know, there's, they, they had a whole clutch and they probably have clutches you don't even know about. So, (laughs) when it comes time for you to bring those animals to market, you're going to have competition. And uh, in ball pythons, it's, it's, it's one reason why I, I really hate that side of, of, of this now. And I really want to stay away from it is it gets to a certain point where all guys can do when they have all the same animals is basically just start slandering each other, cutting prices or, uh, or doing whatever it takes to make that sale. And, uh, right. you know, that's, that that's the problem is uh is even the guy that sold you the snake you know he'll he'll be talking to the customer that you're talking to and he'll say yeah well you know that guy's really new and doesn't know what he's doing and you know he starts <laughs> it, it, it's, right. it's, uh, it's it's pretty bad so i mean but the best thing you can do you know that's not a good you know negativity is negativity and and you don't want to want to you know get yourself involved in stuff like that you just want to out focus on the animals um, focus on the quality, treat people good, shake hands with people at the shows and, uh, and keep yourself out of that. And eventually if you do that for years and years and years, people are going to see, you know, who you are and, and how great your animals are. And you're going to be able to start to compete and, uh, and be a part of the market. But, you know, your college tuition is going to be a lot of money and a lot of failure and, and a lot of frustration. And so, um, you know, that's, uh, mm-hmm that's something not a lot of people want to hear. And, and, uh, <laughs> I don't want to jump forward to my, my Indonesia trip, but, uh, you know, one, one of the coolest things about that trip that, uh, that really opened my mind and, and made me see things differently as far as, uh, as far as just 
all of us as a whole is we went over there to be a part of a reptile contest and judge a reptile contest. And, uh, this, that, that was new to me. You know, we don't have that at Tinley park or really anywhere that I'm aware of where That'd everybody so cool, brings though. their, everybody brings their favorite animal and there's mm. great prizes and there's all this, and there's all this camaraderie. They even have, uh, they have like crews or, uh, or teams and they're all wearing the same t-shirt and it's, uh, it's like, you know, Team Salvatore or whatever, and just this whole group of people show up, and they have these unbelievable water monitors of every different color variety, like not morphs, like, you know, different uh, island localities and, and selectively bred animals, and there's, there's a veterinarian there, and there's a professional breeder there, and there's um, an exporter there or whatever, and, like, there's these different guys, and the categories they're judging these animals on, are, it's, it's extremely extensive, and... I mean, the monitors these people brought out were mind-blowing. I'd never seen such beautiful, well, well-kept monitors in my life. And, uh, and that whole concept where it's like, it's not about breeding and selling. It's about having the nicest animal and the healthiest animal and uh, getting together and showing everybody, you know, what, what is your favorite animal in your collection. If we had more of that and less just, you know, calculator cowboys just uh, – you know, wanting to be the next big breeder. That, uh, I like that. that. That would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, that, that was really cool. And I think, I hope that eventually we'll move in that direction and we will, because this industry is, is not going to stop growing. It's growing mm-hmm. faster than we can believe. And once people get into this, they might get into this to be a ball python breeder, but a couple of years down the road when they realize how lame that is and how boring that is and that they didn't make any money, they still want to keep these reptiles because reptiles are awesome. And mm. uh, I think that's where the future is really bright. And I realize that it's not going to go anywhere is because, you know, so many people are getting into this. And once you are into this, nothing else is really that cool. I mean, once you have all these amazing exotic animals from all over the world in your living room or out in your you know, your, uh, attached garage or something, it's like, it's really hard for that to leave you. And, uh, so I, I hope that we can, we can see more of that. And I think, uh, people getting into this business should open, open their mind and, uh, try to think of other ways they can service everybody doing this, you know, whether it's starting a reptile contest, uh, show or making some, some cool new water bowls or, um, or make so one thing we really need a lot more of is more reptile media. We need more people that are making cool YouTubes or online magazines or promoting how cool this is. I feel like we need a lot more of that. And, uh, and when you do that, when you go out there and you create more content, not only are you helping promote yourself and you're letting everybody know who you are, but you're helping all of us, you know, like what you guys are doing, that's really helping us. And so, we definitely need to see more of that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, definitely. I would agree. Sure. <laughs> that, that's I why he's trying to set up a herp trip now and various other projects that are going on in his little hobbit brain that <laughs> yep. we, I keep having to get dragged along into. So You love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. No, that's so. great. I mean, you're, you're hustling, Eric, and, and you're doing a lot of good things. And, uh, and you've got the kind of personality that uh, that makes makes big things happen in this. And I definitely appreciate what you guys have done on this show. And uh, and the carpet fest seem like they've really taken off. I know uh, mm-hmm. Ian's trying to do one now. And 
Yeah. Um, yep. That's, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. That's cool. Thanks, man. Yep. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll get more. But, uh, Forrest, why don't you uh, tell us, what, what, do you, what do you got, what are you keeping right now? Like, what's in your collection? What do you, what, what gives you the most grief and what's your pride and joy? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> well, um, you know, it, it wasn't like this until I'd say like the past uh, two years, you know, before I was very focused, although I always had a lot of random cool things. I mean, I've always considered myself a collector before a breeder. Um, I've always, you know, when I seen one of a kind turtles, I would pick them up or something <laughs> was really rare. I always liked that, that, but I was really focused on chondros, green tree pythons and uh, ball pythons for a long time. You know, I was really, that's where I was, you know, when I was saving up for the shows and, and making big purchases, it was that. And uh, it was, you know, I would say like um, a, a defining change for me was reading the Barker's book, The Invisible Ark. And uh, and if you haven't read that book, you should really pick it up. But it's uh, it's in defense of captivity. Um, the Invisible Ark is, is the title by Dave and Tracy Barker. And uh, and it's it's just a book explaining why we do what we do and why we should be able to keep animals in captivity and how important it is to establish uh, rare species and uh, endangered species in captivity. And, uh, and it's, it's a great debate and it's, it's, you know, there's, there's definitely two sides of that debate. And, um, that book really inspired me to want to be a big part of that invisible arc and to want to, instead of spending my money on some new, um, you know, some, some new disposable color morph that this male this year, I'm going to spend $10,000 on on it and I'm going to breed it. I'm going to make more of them and I'm going to sell them for this much, but in a few years, this male, you know, I, th- he's going to be worth nothing. Like, you know, nobody's going to want to keep him. There's not going to be cage space for him because he's not cool anymore. And I kind of got like a little burnt out on that idea. And so I want, I started to search out, you know, rare and, and cool species that I wanted to work with. And um, so that's really what, what I'm into right now. I mean, I'm, I'm really trying to not buy a lot of one thing, but I mean, I have a, a really great green tree python collection. It's mainly designers. Um, I got into emeralds, uh, corallis, both, uh, both the basins and the northerns. I got into those um, maybe two years ago or so. And I went, once I, once I seen my first, uh, my first northern emerald tree boa, captive born, captive born and bred and born, um, I got, it was a Miss Willie line animal. And mm-hmm. I got her, I got her from a guy named Norm Friedman, and uh, he's he's been keeping arboreals for um, over 50 years. And he walked out in his yard with her, and I mean, it's just this massive northern emerald tree boa with, you know, ton of white on her and just this beautiful green and bluish hue. And the second I seen her, I was like, oh my god, I don't know if I ever want to see another condor again. Like that's that's <laughs> what I'm all about right there. Like that that's everything that makes a condor cool. And then, like, times 10, like, that is the most – and to this day, I mean, seeing a beautiful um, CBB emerald is, like, nothing you're ever going to see. I mean, the size of them, the color, they're just absolutely incredible. So I, I started going kind of crazy with those, and I think I have 30-something um, captive-born <laughs> emeralds now. Um, Jesus. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you yeah, have so, a few. <laughs> so, yeah, I have a few. 
And uh, I, I have a lot of chondros too. I mean, um, I think I have, you know, somewhere w- well over 50, 60 chondros. At one point I had, had over a hundred and, uh, I, I got rid of a lot of the ones I didn't need and, um, more, more manageable, but they're very, they're very low maintenance. I mean, that's the thing about, um, green tree pythons and emeralds compared to terrestrial snakes is if you keep them the right way, they don't take nearly the amount of upkeep as, uh, as you know, ball pythons or colubrids or something like that. So, um, I have, I have those two species. And then I also have like a more commercial group of corn snakes and Mm -hmm. it's all, it's all scaleless stuff. Like I have around, uh, I probably have like around 30 something visual scaleless, uh, corn snakes of all the different morphs. And then I have like a hundred and something, uh, het females. And so, that's like that's out with uh that's out in a room connected to uh my rodent facility mm-hmm. and that's like my last like commercial group of of snakes where I'm really like just trying to turn out big numbers and uh and and do that more for for the business side of things but uh i I just started to get obsessed with uh with turtles like uh I'm really into kuora um they're they're uh, Asian box turtles that all of them are critically endangered and in really rough shape in the wild because people are eating, they're using them for traditional medicine. So apparently over in, uh, in China, if you're wealthy and you have a lot of money and you want to live forever, you have to get your hands on one of these golden coin turtles and, uh, mm-hmm. and eat it and you'll actually cure your cancer. So, um, uh, so they've just right. ripped, ripped them out <laughs> And I've heard they have literal like reptile shows where you walk around and there's booths of all these amazing turtles and there's like flashing neon lights and like music playing and everybody's like having a party and they're walking around paying up to $50,000 a piece for these, these rare turtles and they're taking oh, them home and eating them. So no. Yeah. So, um, so I got really excited about those and uh, I'm, I'm working on trying to build a really awesome collection of those. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of cool species of Kuora and, uh, what I'm also just beyond obsessed with has been Abronia. So I got into Abronia a little over a year ago and, uh, they're absolutely like, I'm completely obsessed with them. I have a bunch of species. There's somewhere in the high twenties, uh, is, is how many species there are. And I think I'm like in the mid to high, yeah, so and cool. and every every single one of them has incredible amount of variation in the phenotypes and color and and uh, you know it's like way cooler than morphs. I mean, there's like if you look at uh, if you look at even like you know Gramenia or Lithotilla or uh, or um, Mixteca, like there's a ton of different color varieties. You know, you can have white ones and red ones and blue ones and all these different calico variations and stuff. So I think there's a ton of potential for breeders for selected breeding and, uh, and making cool projects out of them, but they're also some of the most endangered lizards in the world. So um, I, I feel really passionate about the Abronia and I have somewhere in the high teens as far as uh, the amount of species that I'm working with. I know I got like uh, the big screen cages. My, my whole living room has become my, um, you know, cloud forest, uh, vivarium kind of environment. And oh, I've got cool. the 18 by 1836, uh, exo or another zoom ed cages. 
and I think I've got like 25 of those already, the big adult cages, and they're all hooked up on a misting system. And then I got a bunch of smaller cages, and outside I have a quarantine area for them. And it's been pretty cool seeing it get down to 50 degrees and uh, seeing these animals, you know, doing, you know, they're still eating during the day and they're breeding and they're doing great um, at those lower temperatures. And so that's what's cool. Like they really thrive in like the, the, uh, 60s and 70s with no basking light and uh you know that like they really thrive in like what normal household temperatures and in, in uh north america you know so like that's pretty cool to not have to uh have heat on them or anything like that awesome i'm finding that is the coolest thing ever because it's like one less thing to worry about <laughs> it's like yes <laughs> i love yep. rhinos so yeah it's like yeah that kind of stuff <laughs> for sure cool. no it's it's really cool it's uh you know I'm, I'm from south dakota it doesn't get very hot there so that was one thing that was really rough on me um like living in florida and working with crocodiles and all this stuff is like you know being out there trimming down ponds and you know getting eaten alive by bugs and stuff and then going to work in the hot snake room like i i really like just uh hanging out in my living room at 70 degrees in my <laughs> and uh <laughs> i want all these uh, animals yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. And, uh, awesome. yeah, so I, and I, and that's kind of like led me into a lot of other, um, Central American reptiles as well. I'm really learning a lot and, uh, chasing some other species. I, I just got, uh, some other little lizards that live on the cloud forest floor called, uh, Xenosaurus. I've got some of those and I've got some Barissia. They're, they're, uh, pretty similar to a Bronia. So I really, I really like lizards right now. Like lizards have been, a a, a really fun, change in my path and uh i plan on pursuing those pretty hard uh i know uh my buddy casper you guys know casper um yeah me to talk about some <laughs> some heloderma and uh oh, yeah. i'm pretty into those yeah <laughs> definitely uh definitely like that stuff i've got mine uh down at cody's right now i'm waiting for my my permit to get uh approved up here should be in the next week or two but uh we're working with some really exciting heloderma projects and uh definitely love those too those are one of the coolest animals that uh that come out of that region and uh i've 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 worked with those since back at uh at glades herp in my early days they always had tons of babies and so we'd be going through working with those and um and we meet we were lucky enough to uh to get our hands on um the chiapas uh black beaded lizard the hordum alvarezi so we have a, a small small group of those, so that's uh, that's that's pretty exciting. I think that's what uh, Casper wanted me to hit on. He's one of, of the only other, one of the only other guys in the world that's working with that project, and he's got some amazing animals. So um, it's it's pretty cool when you see uh, when you see a beaded lizard just jet black. And uh, the crazy thing about him is, I, I realized when we got him and uh, and just handling them, and then uh, I took them outside from the person I, I purchased them at their place, took them outside. And, uh, the thing I was letting it walk around the yard and following it. And it just went and crawled straight up a tree. And I was mm-hmm. like, Whoa, that's crazy. Like that thing. And, and then it like kind of, they have like almost like a prehensile tail. It's not a full prehensile tail, but they can control the very end tip of their tail and their tail is very long. I mean, when you see it Alvarez eye in person, it's like, just blows your mind how long their tails are especially the males and uh they're they're just really cool and uh 
yeah, it's uh, it's a really exciting project for for conservation. It'll be cool to be able to put some of those animals in uh, in private people's hands, hopefully. So, um, are they difficult to, to work? And, are they difficult to work with? No, they're extremely easy to work with. They're like they're bulletproof. I mean, I yeah. I don't I don't know if yeah I don't know if you could kill a a gila or a beaded lizard. I mean, they're just, <laughs> I, I mean, you look, you look at their environment and uh, they can go so long without water. They store a lot of their, their fat and their, their food for the year in their tail. So they can go a long time without food. If you want to breed them, I think they're, I haven't bred them yet. Cody's uh, produced successfully several clutches and, uh, and we've talked to a lot of people that have produced them. And I think um, if you just do a few, few basic things and uh, follow, follow the right temp, uh, cycling regimen. I know the Alvarez I like, you know, they're found in, in the same cloud forest and stuff as the Abronia. They definitely need to be kept on the cooler side. And, uh, to do that. And, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think they're great animals to work with. If you get bit by them, obviously it, it does hurt pretty bad. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't, I haven't been bit, but I've, I've been around several people that have, and, uh, it seemed pretty uncomfortable for all of them. But uh, it's it's not you know it's not life threatening. I mean I think it'd be crazy to say it's like a super big deal if you get bit by one, but it's just it's a lot of pain. You know I think most people say it's like having a hot iron on your hand for a couple of days. And That's not one good. one person I <laughs> one person I seen get bit by it threw up pretty bad and oh my having God. hot flashes. But wow. yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, w- which would you prefer, the Gila monsters or the beaded's? Or is it like I, you can't? Get I like there? all of them. Okay. Yeah, I like all of them. Um, I I like the. Uh, I I mean, Gila monsters are just absolutely beautiful, and both mm-hmm. both the reticulated and the banded ones. Um, they they come in a lot of of different looks and color varieties. Uh, Co- Cody had like the coolest uh, Gila monster I've ever seen in my life. It's with Steve Angeli now, but it was from the Randy Wright line, and it was like a really high yellow. Gila monster and I'd, I'd really like to get really? my hands on some of those yeah hmm. yeah just very very you know it's like there's like that pinkish hue but this one had you know looked really similar to that but it was just like uh in, instead of it being pink it was really yellow and uh yeah I I like all of them though and there's uh there's just a lot of variety in them and they do well. A lot of people keep them in uh, in rack systems. I don't think they like it very much. They scratch a lot and make yeah. a lot of noise. I think they do really well in cages, like a six-foot cage or a trough works really good for them. Um, and uh, it's weird because, you know, the, the experience I've had when, I, when I've worked with them is they really like water, you know. Like they come from a place that's supposed to be, um, you know, as dry as could be, and they only get water a few times a year. But when you have them, um, I've seen them even float for hours at a time. Like uh, I was working with some reticulated Gila monsters, and they would just sit there and float in the water for hours, which I thought was pretty crazy. But they're always soaking, and they seem to enjoy having water. So, like, um, hmm. having having a good water bowl in there for them is, is a good thing. And uh, I know I, I read a, in a journal uh, not too long ago that they discovered one in the trunk of a tree floating in water. So it's completely submerged in water inside the trunk of like a, some kind of desert tree or cactus. I can't remember what it was, but hmm. you know, that, 
kind of goes to show like if you just uh if you just assume looking at the at the weather where your where your favorite reptile is from that's how you should keep it that's it's not the case you know sometimes you gotta dig a little deep deeper into it or think about it a little harder to to figure out what it is they really want right and uh yeah yep there were lizards always on sure. my uh on my list i think it was because my dad was like that was his you know his holy grail was uh you know heal a monster so one day I'll get him a heel. Oh monster. yeah, same here. <laughs> you know, and you know what? And, and those all black beaded. Like every time Casper throws up a picture, I'm like, God damn it, the thing is gorgeous. <laughs> so now I'm yep. going to be tortured, and then they're going to start getting produced in the U.S., and I'm going to be really unhappy until I get some. Yep. So. Yep. Damn yeah. It. No, it's funny because uh, it was you know Casper came over for ICAST, and then uh, he was mm-hmm. in Daytona. I remember meeting him and. Uh, he he was talking about it. It was outside on the patio at Daytona, and he's just going on and on about how cool these black beaded were, and uh, and that never left me. And then uh, eventually, an opportunity came up to get some from one of my friends, uh, you know, that that were legal and uh, and all checked out and everything. And so I jumped on that opportunity, and uh, that's that's pretty cool. So Cody has those down at his place, and uh, we're pretty excited about that. And um, but it's all Casper's fault if he wouldn't have opened his mouth. And <laughs> Damn it! Him, so. <laughs> Damn that Viking! Yeah, yeah I mean, yep. lots of things are Casper's fault. Let's just you know, blame a lot of things on him. So. Yeah. Yep. Cool. If uh, if I only had as cool of hair as Casper, though, I just I've got I've got to beat it now. But you know, he had he had the cool man bun, and and now he's got this really cool haircut. You know, I don't have don't yeah, have cool hair like he's... Casper. Such a pretty, pretty man. Anyway, we just got to hang out with him uh, this this week in Ham, so that was pretty cool seeing him again. And it was, uh, yeah, he that guy's collection's ridiculous, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Did you? It always was. Did you guys see that black radiated tortoise that he got? What? Yes. No. What yeah, he just, got, something. he just got like a, a melanistic radiated tortoise. Like, I can't believe it, man. He's going through a phase right now, all black animals. It's kind of a little weird. I'm a little concerned about him. So, yep. Yeah. Black, like, black and, uh, and banded, you know, like the, the lace monitors. It's, uh, oh, well, you know, talk yeah, about talk about a lizard that I wouldn't. I, I love a lace monitor, and I'm pretty sure I can blame my monitor friends for that one. So. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Um, yeah, no, they're amazing. Something kind of interested going back to the Horde of Malvarezi is there's very few, if, if any, pictures you can find of, of what a baby Horde of Malvarezi looks like. But the one photo you can find is from a recent paper that was done, and uh, it shows one baby, and, uh, and it's, it's banded almost exactly like a Bell's Phase lace monitor, which oh, is pretty crazy. Oh, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's uh, that, that's something that uh, I'll, I'll be pretty excited about, you know, if we get far enough to be producing babies, knock on wood. Um, I hope to see some, some banded babies like that. That would be really cool. Wow. That's but, sweet. Uh, so yeah. I, I know this is jumping around, but I'm curious, how was Han? Yeah. You know, just, just like, uh, just like the Indonesia reptile show, just like opened my mind and kind of charged me up and, whole nother direction seeing the ham show and seeing 
the the amount of people. I mean, it's it's got to be four or five times the size of Tinley Park. No way. I mean, there's like a thousand people in the line outside and it's going all the way around the block and there's booths outside and there's tents outside, vendors, hot dog stands, or I guess, you know, bratwurst stands or whatever. Sure, um, right. You know, so, so <laughs> German brats and beer. Hot dogs? Uh, what are you speaking of? Yes, the guy, well. <laughs> but uh, the amount of people is mind-blowing. The selection of animals is just unbelievable. I mean, so many cool, you know, you always hear about the, the Fiji iguanas and a few different things, but I mean, it was all across the board. I mean, they have a ton of different stuff there and, uh, and the keepers over there all just do a really good job at presenting their animals and everything's really professional. Um, things are more strict over there. So they've got to have like CITES paperwork on the table with their animals yeah. and it's really tight restrictions on, you know, you can't, take animals out and handle them and you can't sell them before the show and uh it's it's a very tightly controlled show and i think there's good reasons for them behind it you know you can't take pictures because uh i guess you know like like us they have to deal with a lot of animal rights extremists over there so um you can't take pictures inside the show and it's uh it's pretty cool i i I worked you know i always heard that if you couldn't get a wristband to get in early it wasn't really worth going because all the cool animals were sold before the show started. So I worked for a long time. It took me years and years to be able to secure one of those wristbands so I could go to every show now and get in early. And I was able to walk around from like, I think I was there at 7am until 10am when the show opened and you could walk around and talk to every vendor and see every animal. But once it, once the show opened, you could barely walk around. I mean, it was like, wow. really? yeah, they say if you're, if you're attending the show, you for sure can't, walk like you get to walk around the show once and you probably can't see every table so it's like you you don't get to just walk around several times like if you are walking through and you see something you better buy it you know mm-hmm. oh wow and uh don't do any of that i'll come yeah. back later Crap. <laughs> no i i think that i think we need to do that at our shows you know we gotta thank let's you make the show like two hours you know <laughs> one day and it's like well, I'll yeah. think about it. Let me talk to my wife. It's like, well, you don't have time. <laughs> yeah, you don't buy have time. <laughs> Just buy it now. Buy it now, yep. or that guy over there is gonna. You know? He's waiting. So. He's coming up next. Yeah, that would make a. <laughs> That's a good idea. A little intense. Yeah. More time for <laughs> yeah. partying, and you sell all your reptiles. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that be <laughs> yeah. That, uh, you know, I'll... that was another crazy thing. I think it kind of made me realize how big the show was gonna be. Is we get over there. And the entire the entire city of Ham, um, all the hotels are completely booked. Jesus. And we start talking to the hotel people, and they're like, oh, it's the reptile show. You're not going to find anything within 20 miles. And our hotel was about 15 to 20 miles away, and it was completely booked with reptile people. Casper ended up being at the same hotel as us. So we ran into Stephen Tillis at our hotel. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, there there was all kinds of reptile people at this hotel, so – just, you know, I mean, at our reptile shows, like, that hotel might sell out from half of it being reptile people. Right. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, see, seeing that, I was like, damn, this is going to be huge. And well, uh, how, how big is the so, city of Ham? Is it like if Chicago were to actually sell out for Tinley Park? Or is Ham not no, as... No, I think, I don't think it's very big, honestly. Okay. Like, I, I don't know. I didn't really look up the population. But, I mean, it seemed decent sized. I mean, right. I think it had to... You know, I mean, because there had to be like maybe six or eight major hotels there, 
Um, Jesus, and they and, all uh, were packed up with this stuff. They that were all nice. packed up and sold. And I guess, um, you know, we, we had a hard time because we were originally supposed to go with uh, guys that go every time and uh, have, have good connections. Um, one, one of them was Mark Bell, who, who runs Reptile Industries, and uh, I, was, mm-hmm. I was supposed to go with him. But because of the hurricane, he wasn't able to go. So mm-hmm. if we would have been with him and, uh, and my other friend Bob Ashley, if he would have came and they would have been able to, like, kind of walk us through it all, it would have went a lot differently. But because we didn't really know what we were doing. And I thought, like, when we went to Indonesia, almost everybody spoke English. Like, it was pretty easy to do everything. We get over there, and it was like nobody spoke English. And, uh, and it was really hard to get money. Like, we didn't have euros when we got there. So we're trying to get euros. And, like, you know, everybody we're talking to is laughing at us. So <laughs> we uh, – <laughs> like it was, it was, yeah, it was a pretty frustrating first day, and uh, and so we we finally get there. But like a lot of people online had invited uh, us to their hotel to see all their animals and a lot of the cool stuff that didn't make it to the show, and that didn't end up happening. So hopefully next time, now that we kind of know how it all works, it'll go a little smoother. But um, yeah, it, it wasn't as easy to to make it all happen, I guess, as I thought it was going to be. Right. And, uh, what was the coolest thing you saw there? Yeah. Um, the coolest thing I saw there, I uh, I'm really into those uh, Kuora turtles. So there was a Kuora galbifrons that's uh, a pretty rare species of those, and it was it was really, really a nice specimen. And then uh, I'm really really into uh, Sanzinia, and so oh, they yeah. had uh, they over here you can get the mandarins all day long, but you can't get the green animals so i've been hunting for the last two years really trying hard to get a green sanzinia and uh, i haven't been able to get some there's a few guys that have them here but uh none of them are willing to sell them to me yet so uh they had a bunch of those there like there was probably 20 animals at the show and uh one of them had like just all these like pink dots all over its back and going down its tail and uh i really wanted that animal that that was amazing yeah, that's cool. Um, sh- yep, shinglebacks. There's like a bunch of huge shinglebacks. Oh, they're awesome. They're really cool. Yeah, <laughs> there's uh, yep, there was uh, yeah, it was, it's incredible. It wasn't wasn't. I was really hoping to pick up some some bloodlines from over there of uh, of northerns and some basins. There was there was one low pattern basin at the show. Um, Casper got it his first basin that was a, a nice animal, but it wasn't displayed at the show. Um, but there was no Northerns. I was pretty bummed about that because a lot of guys over there have captive born Northerns and, uh, and they're absolutely, uh, some of the best ones around. I mean, there's some, some high white ones and I, uh, I'm working with a project. Uh, I, I have a black Northern, um, it's like, you know, really, really high, high black and i guess they're the only other ones are over there there's like supposedly one or two other female uh black northerns over there so i was hoping to meet those guys but i didn't run into them is that the one that's uh at the top of your uh rep rep tech uh facebook page it is yeah holy shit that's cool man (laughs) that is cool it's crazy man wow so how how difficult are they to keep yeah. Um, I've found them extremely easy to keep. I mean, just like chondros, like, uh, 
you know, my, I have for the past uh, seven or eight years, I've been a diehard uh, Philip Barker method keeper. So, um, so I don't uh, dehydrate and overheat my animals. I keep them, you know, close to that preferred core body temperature of where they want to be kept, which is around 80 degrees. And, uh, and I don't, I don't really cycle them or do anything like that. Um, in, in my opinion, a lot of this comes down to hydration and, with chondros, it's really important, but uh, with with uh, emeralds, it's it's a, a lot more important. Even I mean, when you see an emerald go into its water bowl, it's like they're chugging water. Like they'll have their water in their water bowl for 20 minutes, mm-hmm. and uh, they drink a ton of water. And so, and uh, and I, I when I say hydration, I mean hydration. I don't mean humidity. I don't spray right. my mm-hmm. chondros. I don't spray my my emeralds. Um, but the emeralds do seem to need a little bit more humidity than chondros. I mean, I've kept chondros in desert environments and in, in the Midwest, and I've never sprayed a chondro in my life. I mean, never. Like, I, I would never spray a chondro. And mm-hmm. uh, that's because I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's necessary. They do know how to drink out of water bowls as babies. Emerald, right. however, don't. Um, emerald, I had, a, I had uh, one of my first captive-born emerald babies I got a group of them from a breeder uh, up in Chicago and they just wouldn't shed. And I was like, what's going on here? And some of those I did start to spray them. And I, I was talking to Ryan Wollinson. Um, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, he's a really skilled emerald keeper and breeder. And he's like, dude, they, they don't know how to drink. Like, <laughs> like they just can't figure out how to drink. So you got to like get them directly over the water bowl and give them some sphagnum, and uh, and I had had a few emeralds get stuck sheds, and even and when that happens with the chondro, it doesn't happen often for me, but when it does, I just soak them in a five-gallon bucket with enough water just to go over their their back and uh, and leave them in there for you know as as long as it takes. You know, it might take a whole day or a little more for them to shed that off. Mm-hmm. Um, but emeralds don't seem to do well with that, especially the babies. They'll like even start spazzing out. And, uh, I think you could kill them doing that. So the emeralds, uh, the, this, these babies, these two babies, they didn't shed for months. I was Jeez. like, man, these things are going to die. Like what's going on. I had them in a cage, which I, I normally keep most things in tubs. Um, but I had this animal in a cage and I took those two animals out. I put them on damp sphagnum. And uh, and had a huge water bowl where they're right over the water bowl, and the mm-hmm. next day they shut out clean multiple sheds, like the next day it was pretty crazy. Huh. So um, yeah. So I I would say with the with the emeralds versus the conros, that's that's the biggest thing. And um and when I say hydration, that doesn't just mean have a water bowl in there or have a huge water bowl in there. The most important thing to me with my arboreals, both both the uh, the chondros and and the corallis, is they get fresh water every five days at the most seven days. They get a fresh new deli cup with uh, fresh RO water in it. And both with my chondros and my emeralds, when I change that cup, if I go back and I and I look at them a few minutes later, they're instantly going for that fresh water. So they just uh, they they definitely you know like like anybody would they they prefer um, clean, fresh water. And so I think that spraying them is, is not the, it's not what they need. What they're looking for is, is to stay properly hydrated. And, uh, if you do that, 
and you don't cook them, you don't keep them too hot with a big giant heat panel or whatever, um, I think that uh, that that's the most important thing. So with so. you keeping them at the uh, like the Philip Barker method, um, how do you breed them? Do you, I mean, is it all year round like chondros or? <laughs> that's a great question because uh, with chondros. Me and Cody had a few small, um, for the most part, pretty unsuccessful clutches, and uh, and I've only had one one clutch of chondros uh, all on my own. So uh, you'd probably want to save that question for an actual <laughs> uh, successful <laughs> breeder. Like I like I said, I'm a collector. I'm not I'm not as much of a breeder yet. But a lot of my animals now are just getting to five and six years old, where I feel comfortable at breeding them, all and right. uh, also being also being a student of the, of the Barkers. Um, Tracy goes into detail a lot in in great depth about moving adult female pythons and how traumatic that is on their life Mm -hmm. and, and how they can develop respiratory or just all these other complications from this horribly traumatic event of being moved from their home. And, and that can be moving it across the room. But when you talk about moving across the country or moving from this house to that house, you know, that's when uh, I, I know Ed Marino, I talked to him for a few hours on the phone recently, and he was telling me with his emeralds how he had him in one place a, a, a while back, and then he moved to a new place, and all everything seemed the same, and a bunch of them started crashing, and he was like, what's going on? And then he moves them to a different room, and all of a sudden they're doing okay, so um, moving is really traumatic, and, and Tracy always said, at the minimum, give your adult animals that you move a full year and because of my life we were moving around a lot um you know just kind of coming up in the game and pursuing this opportunity and having to move here for school or here for work and uh so now my my chondros have all been in the same place in their final destination for two full years now so now i feel like you know and my first my first successful clutch was after i waited a full year ultrasounded waited for the right moment for introduction and uh, it was like clockwork just like rico and uh, terry phillip and several of my friends told me they're like wait for eight to 12 millimeters do your first introduction i did that um they bred right away then i i uh, a month later i ultrasounded her and she was at 20 millimeters i put them in one more time and got good eggs so that was uh that was pretty cool and now it's going to be my second year where everything has been up to size and uh I should be breeding somewhere in the 20 like 20 something female chondros and uh and then emeralds I just got into them so I tried to breed um I bet I bred a pair of basins last year and mm-hmm. I bred uh that that uh melanistic male the dark knight uh, is what the guy I I bought him from called him I bred so him cool. to a I mean um, yes <laughs> <laughs> yep. I I bred him to my Miss Willie line, adult female, and uh, that's that's like my dream pairing. I mean, if I can do that, I think my my snake life will be complete, and uh, I'll never never. <laughs> and I never, see, so you say um, that now. You know. Yeah, and then you just gotta yeah. find something else. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's there's always chasing the dragon. And, of uh, course. Oh yeah. Yep. It's uh, but I I mean really I really want to do that and. Uh, then I have another pair of Miss Willie line animals. I mean, this this line of of Northerns is just unreal. Like all the Northern guys are crazy for them, and so 
I'll probably try that pairing, and then I'll try to uh, I'll try to breed my other Miss Willie line pair together, and uh, so I'll have a pure Miss Willie line pairing, and then the melanistic to Miss Willie, and then I have a adult uh, anaconda phase female that's captive born from a guy Jeez. named Rolo, and uh, mm-hmm. so I'll probably I don't I don't know if I'll breed a Miss Willie line male to her maybe as well, and then I have. Um, it's supposedly I don't have documentation on it, but it's a snowflake line uh basin and then I have another just like kinda average low white uh basin adult female. She's really old. Um I think she was uh produced in two thousand six, so that's not really old, but I mean she's a she's an older animal um that's been bred a few times, so I'm gonna try to breed her and then I have uh I have a younger pair of basins that's really nice and then just a whole whole nother group of northerns that i'm raising up like i said i have like 30 30 something now so um wow so have you, yeah, have you I gotten know. a litter yet or with this are you no. looking at you're staring down your first litter nope i'm staring down the first litter and last oh. year um yeah. after you know when when i when i used to go to rico's i went to rico's several times and and he's a great friend and somebody i really looked up to but when I used to go there, I was really into chondros and I didn't really spend a ton of time looking at, uh, his, his emeralds, unfortunately. And, uh, he's pretty much the most success. He is the most successful, uh, captive breeder of, uh, of Northern emeralds there's ever been. I mean, I think one year he tried 10 pairs and he produced 10 pairs of 10 litters of babies. So that'll tell you a little something about Rico. But, uh, yeah, but, uh, hearing, um, some other people talk about, how Rico did that. They said it was really important to pair your animals in, uh, in like December to the first of of January, like, like January is the perfect time to pair them together. And, uh, I went too late. I was later on than that. And I think I missed their window. Um, I I didn't ultrasound them last year either. I'm, I'm going to be monitoring their follicular development more this year and hopefully that'll help me out. So cool. It's, uh, be awesome. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of a lot of people just get wild caught females in too and get litters. You know, that's how the abronia are. It's like, oh, I produced some awesome abronia, and it's like, well, you didn't really breed them. You it, just it got a wild work. one in it. <laughs> you, yeah. got, you got lucky. You cheated. <laughs> Do it again. Yep. You know that's, Yeah, that that's enough out of that. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, it's, that's it's, it's funny you bring up that whole thing with. Um, with the whole snake and moving it and the female and how it stresses them out. I swear that that is the problem with scrub pythons. I'm, mm-hmm. I swear I, I would bet my a month's paycheck on it because it just seems like people will, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll get into it hot and heavy. Like we talked about at the beginning and it's like, you know, um, Oh yeah. And, and they just go bye, 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 bye. And then, then they realize the animal that they're, working with and then they're like no thanks and you know then then it's reset the clock you know so So you heard it here folks if you breed your scrub pythons after having it for less than a year eric will give you a month of his pay (laughs) (laughs) oh man look at their behavior though and what it's telling you you know i mean just how uh at their disposition of a lot of the scrub pythons and mm-hmm. imports and stuff that people have. I mean, they're, they're striking at everything. They're, they're acting um, pretty aggressive and they're stressed out. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that um, 
you know, your fifth generation ones aren't going to be like that too. But, you know, talk to any of the, the old school, old time herpers about how retics were uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. And uh, they're going to tell you the retics were just like the scrubs, you know, they were striking at everything and you couldn't breed them. They were really difficult to keep. And, uh, and then somebody probably got lucky and got their first captive hatched ones. And then they raised those ones up and they were a little bit better. And uh, then they did the work and they bred those and, and the story goes on. And so um, it's traumatic for them. And that's why it's so difficult to produce from wild caught animals. But pythons, Tracy says, even um, more than other animals, you know, I mean, there's been adult female morphs of ball pythons that came in that were incredible and people bred them for tried to breed them for years and years and years and were never successful uh tracy had a project called uh the burgundy and i think uh ryan young eventually ended up with the project and i think it ended up being another one of the uh the ultramel or uh caramel albino strains but it's a it was a really nice version of it and uh, I think I don't I don't know what the exact details of it are. Ryan or Tracy could tell you more, but I think it was well over ten years until that animal finally produced, and uh, and pro- probably more than that. I mean, that just goes to show it's it's really difficult to rip them out of the out of the wild and put them in this new environment and then expect them to produce. And um, and even a nice healthy captive animal, when you move it, that's that's really stressful on it and. I think with chondros, you know, obviously you guys had, had Cody on talking about, you know, some of the, the problems that, uh, that chondros have. And for a while, um, when we started getting all these amazing selective bread designers and stuff, all these guys came in with a lot of money and they kind of started treating them like trading cards. And they're like, well, I'll just send this one to you and you send this one here. We'll breed these two together. We'll make a bunch of money. Right. And uh, I think they killed a lot of the best, animals there ever were doing with that mentality you know just thinking that you can just ship this thing across the country right before breeding season and uh and expect for it not to get sick or be stressed out and then produce a good clutch of eggs for you and uh and so and there was so much of that going on in chondros in in the earlier days with the designers and uh and then also you know that kind of um really really made the whole disease thing i think why so many people got wiped out was that same, same mentality and those same practices of I'll loan this to you. We'll ship this here, put this in with this, breed it right away. And next thing you know, that guy's not around anymore. And that's how it's been with, uh, with most of the significant chondro breeders, you know, they're there and then they're not anymore. And, uh, I guess, I guess that's, you know, I can say I haven't produced a bunch of chondros, but I am very proud of, of, uh, my success in, in keeping them alive and healthy and, and, uh, you know, any of the pictures you see of my chondros on, on Instagram or, um, anything like that, they're all still alive and you can come and stand in my room and you're not going to hear any wheezing or, uh, see any stuck sheds or anything. So I am proud that I've been able to, and, you know, I should probably be more humble about that though, because, Hmm. um, that, uh, that certainly could end. And, uh, and I really feel for a lot of people that, that have uh, have lost their collections because some of the best guys there ever were in chondros have have lost everything and uh, yeah it's it's really bad but you know pa- patience and uh, you know a, a good example of of somebody that did it right is is David D from Vibrant Veritas and you know 
He's one mm-hmm. of the only guys I've ever seen in Condros. Um, and Marshall gives this advice out a lot too. Um, David's one of the only guys that ever, ever went out and he bought all babies. Like he bought all unchanged neonates and got yeah. all these amazing animals. He didn't go uh-huh. buy adult females. And he's got a healthy and, um, you know, just he's he's got a really – great collection that is producing regularly for him now and he's having some of the most amazing clutches ever produced because he came in he went around and he learned and he took people's advice like marshall that told him to buy babies and you know told him about some of the problems with buying older animals and he waited somehow he he ended up with the most amazing phenotypes you'll ever see yeah so he got lucky a little bit there too yeah yeah jeez yep um yeah, that bastard. Oh, yeah. But, uh, His blue stuff is <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, man. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's he's uh, it's incredible what he's done, and I really hope that uh, that he continues to have success so he can uh, propagate and and continue to put out all these amazing bloodlines that uh, that can you know introduce people to these animals and inspire people to want to keep them because. Condros are amazing. I mean, there's nothing like them. That's that's what attracted me to them was it's like, you know, you you have no idea what you're going to get. You have to buy a baby. You have to wait. And you have no idea what that thing is going to turn into. It's not a, you know, it's it's not producing the newest uh, banana, enchi, pieball, this or that, where it's going to be that. <laughs> right. I'm going to end up with a completely unique, you know, piece of living art. And there's never going to be another one like it, you know, like that. And in every one of my chondros, I mean, none of my chondros would I ever be like, well, that one's just a pastel male, you know, chuck it down to a pet shop or something. It's like they – A normal. Yeah, what? No. <laughs> yeah, there's no normal. You know, there's no normal. No normal. Like, uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, that that's what makes them so awesome. And, uh, and I think, you know, it, it really helps hold the value too. You know, for one, they're, they're – are a lot of issues in, in keeping them healthy because of uh, some things that get passed around. And, uh, and then you don't know what you're going to get. They're really hard to breed. You can, you know, it's like, there's so many uh, barriers you have to overcome to produce healthy green tree pythons. You know, you first, you have to get them to breed and, and not die of course. And then, uh, and then you have to actually get them to lay eggs and then when they lay eggs, you have to get them to get them to not dump them all over the cage into the water bowl, and <laughs> you know like <laughs> take care know, of their babies. They yeah. literally just they literally just chuck them off the I mean, chuck them off like it. And and when you see it happen, I mean I've seen it happen several times. I can't describe to you just the level of disgust in seeing them. <laughs> like it's like <laughs> no, no, you had it's one the, job. It's the garret. The worst thing you've ever seen in your life. And then they beehive really tight over their eggs, and then you have to go and pull this chondro, you know, that's striking at you. You got to get that thing off the eggs, which with anything, that's always a little challenging. Hoping they mm. don't roll all over the place when they do that. Um, so then you got to get them off the eggs. And then, um, you know, more than any other python I've heard of, it's just completely normal to have full-term dead babies at the end of incubation. So yeah. you go in there, you check the incubator, you know, all of a sudden it's day 65 and, you know, you're trying to, you are like, oh, my God, what happened? You just cut them open and it's like, you know, or you cut them at day 50 and you wait for them to come out. And either way, you just have these full-term dead babies. Then you get past that. 
then you get to try to get them to eat. And uh, <laughs> you know, oh, this is your prize. <laughs> no. yeah. and that's where uh, me, Cody, and I, uh, our our first uh, clutch of chondros. It was it was supposed to be a pair of Laras, but uh, looking back, we think it was a pair of Kofiels. And uh, there was a uh, it was a good sized clutch somewhere in the high teens, and uh, and they were all runners. You know, when we call them runners, it means when you go to feed them, when you initially uh, get their attention, they're going to mm-hmm. fly off the perch out of the tub and just do anything they can except strike. So um, they're, they're a nightmare. I mean, run, clutches of runners almost always die. And, uh, and Kofi owls actually, um, you know, they're, they're very valuable. And I, I have a really nice group Ooh. of Kofi owls. I love and, them, uh, and once I, <laughs> I, I uh, do too. And like, like I said, uh, I mean, I, I probably have, um, one of the most diverse or maybe the most diverse collection of Kofi Owls out there bloodline wise. And, uh, and once I produce them, I think I'm going to be like, why do I have any of these? Because it's, it's really normal for them <laughs> to just refuse to feed. Right. And, uh, and I've, I've, every time somebody has a clutch, they're always trying to dump them on me, not feeding. And, uh, and I don't ever want them because I know they're not going to feed. And I've, I've had several deals like that set up where I was supposed to get a clutch of babies from somebody and they all died because they didn't start feeding. But, uh, yeah. So, so that, you know, that, that was one of those things where when I talk about like, you know, meeting Cody was a turning point for me, you know, Cody had been keeping all kinds of species of reptiles since he was like, you know, four or five years old. And, Mm -hmm. uh, he had kept several species of, uh, arboreal vipers and, and so, you know, when, when, um, you know, most of us were in middle school, you know, Cody was chopping off uh, mouse legs off a frozen mouse and force feeding it down a venomous snake's, uh, venomous snake's throat. And uh, he knew all the oh, tricks. And uh, what, <laughs> just, just watching him tease feed was like, wow, man, like, I can't believe he's willing to sit there for that long in the dark. And, uh, and I, I remember the first time he got one to strike and hold it. And he's like, freeze. And like, he literally would sit there and not move. He would not even move the whole time until the animal swallowed the pinky. And I did that one time with him. I sat there and didn't move an inch. And for my personality, like I'm, I'm the most attention deficit person you'll ever meet in your life. Like I can't stop for one second. And like, that was the most miserable 10 minutes of my life. Like just sitting there and letting that animal uh, swallow that pinky. So luckily though, uh, he, he also taught my wife these, this same skills with, uh, tease feeding and she has patients like him. So, uh, so she's in charge of getting babies going, but, uh, not, not everybody has that, that innate skill like that to be able to do that, you know? Right. So it's, but, uh, wow. Yeah. It's, uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of a little walkthrough of what you have, how, have to look forward to with uh trying to produce chondros <laughs> that's why <laughs> owen sounds awesome that's why owen, owen got rid of all his yeah, yeah owen said i'm out <laughs> i'm done i'm done um, i'll go to the bumpy chondros so this may be uh this may be a newbie question as far as uh emerald tree bows go but i'm just curious since you keep both emeralds and uh chondros is there any thought on like why you get high white uh, emerald tree boas? Because I'm looking at some of your animals uh, on your, on your Facebook page, and like some of these, like the there's one there that has like this 
solid white stripe, uh, what is it, a basin from George and Lovely. Um, mm-hmm. Why doesn't that, why do you think that doesn't transfer over in Condros? Any thoughts? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, I mean, there are really, uh, re- there, there are some localities like, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen like a really high white Aru or Maruki, Yeah, but, it, but seems uh, like, it seems like you can't reproduce it. You know the high white, the high white, oh, the babies can still come out with barely any or no yeah. white on them. Right. Yeah. After they develop. I, I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I've always heard that with the ruse. Um, you know, I don't feel, I personally don't feel like uh, there's been a ton of successful reproduction of, uh, of some of these locality types. I mean, I would need to personally produce a ton of a ruse. To, to see that for myself, that it's impossible to, to reproduce a high white Aru. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I would say, you know, maybe they need to, to keep doing it. But I mean, I guess, you know, maybe if you, uh, if you talk to Cameron or somebody at the farms, maybe, maybe that is the case. Um, I mean, Aru's are like Kofiaus, so a lot of them are runners. So it's like, they're really hard to get going. So I don't, I, I I would need to see a bigger sample size, I guess, of that to completely rule that as law. You know, it's just like people say uh, lemon tree and calico chondros are infertile or have genetic problems, and it's just designers. But mm-hmm. in all reality, people are people are so unsuccessful at keeping chondros. Um, I completely have uh, have no faith in when people tell me that. It's like, oh, well, that's just the blue line animals. They're weak. It's like, well, really everybody's captive chondros as a whole are, uh, are are pretty weak, you know, like people do a lot of stupid things with them and have a lot of problems. So um, I have a hard time accepting that as fact, but maybe it is with the emeralds though. I mean, it does not seem to see, be the fact. I mean, look at the Miss Willie line animals. They reproduce amazing high white animals and uh, right. why, why that is, I, I don't really know if that's like, you know, an incubation thing or something. I, with with the chondros, I have no idea, but uh, like I said, I, I have a hard time uh, believing I that think, is, is total fact. Yeah, I think I think you uh, brought up a good point that I never thought about. Like I say it all the time, but I never put two and two together. It's like you don't really see locale a lot of locale. I I, I mean Marukis, Mar- Mar- Marokis, whatever you want to call them, um, are like my next favorite, and I have some of those. For that, mm-hmm. you know, the green with the white stripe is the idea. But, um, like, you don't see any, but I can't find them anywhere. No, Like, nobody breeds captive born and bred Moroccis that I can find. Yeah. I don't oh, know. Maybe I mean, I'm looking at the wrong for, spots. For but. Good, yeah, no. I, and, I mean, Rico did and Terry Phillip did. I mean, I've seen several good clutches of uh, ca- captive uh, born and bred Marukis, Marokis, Marakis. The ropes, whatever, yeah. whatever, <laughs> whatever you feel but, uh, like saying it. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, people do. It's just, it's, it's, um, when we talk about how hard it is to breed chondros, there's mm-hmm. very little reason to do so to go through all that work and to take them to shows. And then somebody has an import for $200 and yours is at a reasonable price of $600 and right. you can't compete. So, it's it's really yeah. hard to compete with the farmed animals, and that's why I think, uh, you know, that in, in combination with those locality types are notoriously bad feeders. I think the Marukis are, are a little better than the Arus, but 
their shy and calm disposition that they have mm-hmm. many times as an adult. Um, that that also, you know, same thing with Kofi owls. My Kofi owls, I can all pull them off the perch and handle them uh, with ease. And most of my condors, I can do that. But, like, compared to a Bioc that has that, like, enhanced feeding response, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's why uh, – that's, and, you know, another reason why the red neos seem to be more desirable, not just the color, but I think early on, you know, uh, Trooper and – and some of the other guys probably had better luck with reds also, and um, they're just easier to get going. But, yeah, localities are uh, – unless you have, like, one of the more desirable localities like the Manaquaris or Cyclops or Kofiow or something, it's hard to compete with farmed animals um, right. that are at a lower price. And uh, that's that's one thing me and Cody talk a lot about, and we always kind of wanted to get on the, uh, the podcast and uh, – give our two cents on it, which, uh, both of us both, uh, seem to have a big, big mouth and, um, a lot of opinions, but if there, if there is one crock of BS I've ever heard in my life, it's uh by us captive born and bred chondros. And, uh, there, that's the only way to success. I mean, the, the farmed imports that come in are so much healthier than a lot of what you're going to find here mm-hmm. in the U S because of things like nidovirus. I mean, Mm-hmm. I've heard of very few instances. I mean, you're talking about Bushmaster and, and, you know, rest in peace, Vladimir. But, I mean, Vladimir was like the guy that um, he was a Russian zoologist that ran the, the Bushmaster farm for Cameron. Right. I mean, he was the most successful chondro breeder that ever lived. And, I mean, read his interviews. Read the things he's talking about, about vitamin injections to improve fecundity, fecundity and uh, – and clutch sizes and, and uh, the different things he figured out with breeding chondros and then try to tell me that they didn't know what they were doing over there, that they had a bunch of parasite ridden sick animals that are being sent over here. I mean, give me a break. So, um, I, yeah, you're, you're, you know, the farmed animals are the locality type animals that I've got in the past compared to some of the stuff you're going to have here in the U S you know, it, it might upset a lot of people that are pitching their stuff out there. But, uh, I think if, if you're a beginner, you have, you know, now, hey, go go out there and, and have your animals tested when you get them from a U.S. breeder. And when you get them in and uh, if everything checks out and you get a good, healthy animal, um, I'm not saying you shouldn't buy U.S. captive born. I'm just saying that was always like the biggest thing that people pitched in chondros. And, of course, a lot of those people aren't around anymore because their collections are dead. But uh, it's, it's just one of those <laughs> right. things that always made me laugh, you know, just just on and on and on about bias by us captive born. And, uh, I think Vladimir and Bushmaster have been putting out some amazing quality animals for a long time. And, uh, and I, I don't care if that means, you know, they'll sell a few more because I know when I produce chondros, I'm going to sell them because they're, you know, they're going to be desirable animals and they're so hard to produce anyways. It's not like it's a big competitive thing. We're kind of, uh, Mm-hmm. We're kind of a tight knit group of guys, and we don't really have to slander each other to to make our sales because there's there's so few successes. It is like uh, I th- I think that uh, you know that's a, a cool thing about the condo market, but the stuff that comes from over there is pretty solid as as a whole. Yeah, that's where my stuff came from. <laughs> yep, so, exactly, yeah. man. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, why don't we uh, move away from snakes and uh yes. let's jump into crocs all right so <laughs> I, we don't we don't have we like you gotta be like maybe the first if not like 
second person that may have actually worked with and is currently working with Crocs that we've had on the show. So, mm-hmm. like, what are you working with? And uh, it says here, ask about Croc morphs. So, I am asking about Croc morphs. So, what's <laughs> going on? Okay. Well, I mean, for, you know, just, just to, like, be clear, I mean, um, I've, you know, since moving out to Florida and uh, meeting Robbie Kezzy and, uh, and getting to work with his amazing, amazing collection of crocodiles, um, it's, uh, I would never call myself a crocodile professional. I mean, I'm, okay. I, it's something that's going to take my whole life to be a crocodile expert or somebody that can really speak with authority on the, the subject. They're, they're incredible animals and, and, um, there's a lot that goes into raising them. I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely something where you need to have good mentors and, uh, you don't want to make any mistakes. And, uh, and so when I moved out to Florida, um, I got involved in, in crocodiles through Robbie. I mean, he has an amazing collection. He had, uh, he had freshwater crocs and saltwaters and Niles and Cubans, dwarf crocs. Um, and he's just, Robbie's an amazing guy that, uh, has a whole lifetime of experience. So um, me and Cody got out there and Cody had kept uh, crocodilians when he, he had a really nice uh, caiman that, uh, that he kept in his personal collection that was like really tame and it would hang out in the living room on the couch with him. And uh, it was just a really cool animal. Um, so Cody had that experience already. Um, and so, you know, learn from him and then uh, learn from Robbie. And then well, me and Cody went to our first Tinley park show Um it was the Tinley Park Summit. It was an incredible event. I mean, just tons of energy and everybody kind of grouping together to get, deal with the uh, the oncoming legislation and fights that uh, we had to deal with from the media and stuff with, with uh, berms and everything else. And we met a, an individual that uh, I'm now, you know, one of my best friends. His name is uh, Terry Cullen. And uh, Terry Cullen has been working with crocodiles pretty much his whole life. And, uh, he has one of the largest private collections of, uh, of crocodiles in the U S and, uh, I, I met him at that Tinley park show and, uh, you know, just hit it off with him right away. And, you know, he was he, early on, he was one of the first guys that was really, you know, hitting me hard with, with why we needed to establish these rare animals in captivity and, and why it's about more than just money and morphs and all this stuff, how we have to, you know, if we don't get these things established in captivity now, there's not going to be any in the future. And, and crocodiles are one of those rare examples where captive breeders, you know, the early alligator farmers with American alligators are, are responsible for saving that species. So when they were almost extinct from, from, uh, you know, hunting and, uh, and people killing them to eat them, it was the farmers who went out and reintroduced them that, that were able to stabilize the population. And there's, really great sustainable programs for harvesting, you know, American alligator eggs and babies and, uh, and, and hunting and stuff. And, uh, you know, Terry was, was always telling me how, you know, the, the hunting thing, if it's managed properly, it's, it's okay, but they're going out there and these hunters are killing the biggest and best genetics. So we need to get those genetics out of the wild and establish them in captivity so we can, you know, have programs to, uh, re-release and, uh, and, and, you know, and also just be able to study them. So Terry had a big impact on me. And, uh, while I was working at Robbie's in Bushnell, Florida, 
Terry had his uh, amazing facility, you know, like the greatest private collection of crocodiles in the U.S., in my opinion. Um, it's on 400 acres of private conservation land that, uh, you know, he's he's worked his whole life to. He has several pieces of land like that that are just for conservation. So he buys these big pieces of land that, you know, he can afford. And he bought this piece of property early on enough in his life where he could afford it because now 400 acres in central Florida would cost, you know, more money than, than uh, almost anybody could really find the means to get. But uh, on that 400 acres, he has a five-acre uh, compound that has big uh, big barbed wire fences all around it and mm-hmm. multiple pump systems with backups and stuff. So I started going out there and volunteering and, uh, and you know, helping uh, clean out baby tubs and, and uh, you know, getting to see, you know, I got to see my first captive born crocodilians at glades um they produced uh they produced several species of caiman while i was there and uh, of course lots of alligators and uh and then at terry's uh they they successfully uh bred in captivity for the first time uh the african slender snout crocodile and so that I was like that was so amazing being able to see cool. those animals that they they produced and uh and then uh, also the broad snout came in. Terry was like the first to reproduce those, I think, uh, in captivity. And he produces those every year. And he has, you know, pretty much every species of crocodile except for uh, gharials, you know, just because he doesn't feel like his property is really the best place to, to keep those. Um, but he has like, you know, almost every other species of crocodilian. So um, I'm vice president of that organization now, Dragon Dragonwood Conservancy, and uh, its sole purpose is is um, crocodile conservation. And uh, you know, also also just hitting on you know crocodile conservation in today's age, um, the skin farms that farm crocodiles for for both leather and for their meat products, they're the leading uh, financial donate. You know, they they donate more money than any other group. You know, more than any animal rights organization or anything like that it's the crocodile farmers that donate the biggest amount of money to the crocodile specialist group which is an amazing group of crocodile specialists all over the world that uh are all about crocodiles so that's just kind of a cool fact and a cool example of why uh breeding these animals in captivity is is important but uh also um so one of my one of my uh best friends uh brian barchek who uh who i've known from early on also um, I was up, up at his place visiting and doing some rodent stuff. And, uh, his employee at the time, his name's Josh Roberts, uh, told me about, they're like, man, he's like, you got to ask Brian about this, uh, this animal that he got an email on the other day. It's like this crazy leucistic caiman. And, uh, so I ran up, ran up to the front to Brian's office and asked him about it. And he's like, yeah, I was going to tell you about it. Like, uh, you know, you work with crocodiles and, and Terry and everything, maybe, this would be a good project for you. And he shows me the picture of it. And it's like this neon, neon yellow, uh, white leucistic looking, uh, baby came in, you know, six inches long. And I'm like, dude, I got to get that. Like, you know, what can we do to get That's that awesome. animal? And, uh, yeah. So I, you know, because I had the experience and everything working with crocodiles, I was able to, uh, to get the permits and everything to get that animal. And I got it and, uh, five of its siblings and, and some of the siblings, uh, they're like visual hats. Like you can really tell that, uh, that they're carrying the gene. So, um, so that's a Cayman crocodile. It's a spectacle Cayman. And, um, so I'm working with that. And then I also have some, uh, 
some black Morlitz crocodiles that I'm working with, but, uh, oh, you know, cool. certainly, certainly not. Yeah. I'm not like a crocodile morph guy. I'm not trying to like create a new, new market for them. I think it's just something for me where, um, it was an opportunity. It's a really cool animal. And, uh, you know, I hope that, uh, that I can reproduce them and then, uh, share them with other collectors and, uh, zoos. I think it'll be a really popular animal for zoos to have. Cause it's, like nothing i've ever seen like i said it's like a fluorescent high yellow um i I think what it is technically is a xanthic not an azanthic Mm -hmm. but a xanthic um kind of like um what a banana ball python or something like that would be so it's uh yeah i think that's the the scientific term for what the morph would be because it's got it's got like white eyes it doesn't have uh black eyes or blue eyes um so white eyes that's a really cool project Kind of whitish yellow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they're, they're no, they're more yellowish. Yeah. Um, he's not creepy. He's terrifying, is what he is. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he, straight, uh, up, from, straight up from hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, even when it was a neonate, it would jump clear out of the water. Even his tail would leave the water to feed. And uh, he's he's the most aggressive crocodilian I've ever seen. And. Uh, and uh I I've had good luck um until this year um I I was capturing his uh his sibling and uh and I went and I captured it and uh I sh- I should have did some things differently but I became so comfortable uh working with this group of animals from a baby and I was just so used to grabbing animals uh you know behind the head or behind the legs you know by you know sometimes it glades by the hundreds and I just got so comfortable doing that with this group of animals. And, and really at this size, you should throw a towel over them or you should noose mm-hmm. them. And, uh, and I had it in a trough and I went and I grabbed the animal and I had it in a trough and I was moving it out of the trough and I tripped and I fell and, uh, okay. the animal got loose and it turned and it, it bit my hand. And, uh, I ended up taking a really bad bite from, uh, from my spectacle came and it gave me uh, 17 stitches Oh um, shit! Yeah, I I won't share pictures of the bite just because it's not a good thing to uh you know, it's not something we should really spread out there in the industry. But uh, mm-hmm. when you guys see me at Tinley, you'll be able to see it from across the room. It was uh, it was a really bad mistake that I'm not proud of, but uh, definitely just like one of those things with with crocodilians where you should take the animals very seriously, even even the trained ones. I mean, I'm not. I understand the the need to train the animals for captive husbandry and stuff like that, but I think uh, some people can be pretty careless with with crocodiles. And when I see people standing right next to their mouth or, um, you know, doing all these tricks or, you know, like some of the, some of the famous selfie uh, reptile people on, on Instagram and stuff that are always doing all these things with like these big uh, dangerous monitors and crocodiles and stuff, I think you should really respect, uh, respect what these animals are capable of even the small ones can can do serious damage and uh mm-hmm. and if you if you want to get into them just uh just find somebody like uh like cody you know i'm I'm really lucky to have cody um in my life and uh, a lot of a lot of zoo people and private people that work with venomous and crocodilians have been lucky enough to be trained by cody and any one of them will tell you he's uh he's he's one of the best teachers that uh that you'll ever find and uh he he got an, an incredible amount of experience at uh, at St. Augustine Alligator Farm and his five years working there. 
he started as a keeper and uh, worked his way up to senior keeper and he trained uh he trained guys like from uh from different military groups going into countries on how to how to capture crocodilians and uh and has been a part of croc school several several times and then uh like i said i had him i had robbie i had uh I had uh, Terry Cullen and uh, just some great friends that, that taught me how to keep and, and work with crocodiles. And, uh, but I still, still had that accident and uh, it's definitely going to be my last. I'm not, not going to have another one because it's uh it's pretty crazy. But, <laughs> right. uh, Please no. Yeah. That's enough. Once is enough. So here, here's, here's the funny thing about that. Like, and again, I'm, I'm, I respect animals and I, I almost never get bit by snakes, but, uh, that bite happened right before I went to Indonesia. And so mm. that was scary enough as it was, you know, having to get those 17 stitches and hoping that it would heal right and everything and then go into a foreign country. Well, then when I get home, um, you know, I'm, I was on this crazy rare colubrid kick. And so I was, you know, one of my good friends, Joe Satowski, who I get a lot of stuff from for a while, he was just calling me up every week. And he's, I was like, well, what's rare this week? And whatever it was, I was getting it, you know? And, <laughs> um, <laughs> And he sends me this this snake called a, a Philodryas veridismus. It's a uh, it's uh I think it's called a well, I can't remember the common name, but uh it uh he's like this thing's evil, man. It's it it it'll bite you any chance it can get. And it was. I mean, once I got it, it bit me a couple times when I first got it, and mm-hmm. uh, nothing happened. And then uh and then one day it grabbed onto my thumb and it held on for like five minutes, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm feeling like all this horrible pain in my hand stinging and my hand swelled up like, you know, three times the size. Like it was like turning black and blue. I'm like, Oh my God, man. And I'm like reading about it online. And like, people are like, Oh, you know, this bite could be nearly fatal and it's terrible and nothing is known about it. And so on one hand I have this, you know, my hands all <laughs> torn up from a crocodile on the other hand. And it lasts all for like swollen two up weeks. from this thing. Yeah. It's all swollen up from this silly, uh, this silly rear fang snake from South America. So I was like, you know, I looked like a total idiot with, uh, you know, people are probably like, Oh, this forest guy, what's he going to get bit by next? And, uh, like I said, I've, I've always been really careful and, and not gotten bit by a lot of animals. And, uh, so that, that's, uh, yeah, that was kind of a funny thing in the past year to, to have both those things happen and have to go through that. So is that the uh, bird bird snake picture that I got on my little, no, that's, that's not the one that made my hand swell up. No, the right. bird snake is, uh, is, um, it's just a colubrid from South America. And that was, a, you know, that was another thing. Uh, you know, like my, my, my big picture dream down the road is I, you know, like a lot of guys, I, I would like to have a zoo. And, uh, mm-hmm. so a lot of, a lot of the purchases in the past few years that I've made have been kind of hope, like, you know, I figure if I really want to have something like that open to the public, it's going to take my whole life to develop a collection worthy enough to become, you know, a world-class exhibit of reptiles. So when I see rare one-of-a-kind things or really rare species, when I'm purchasing them, I'm not really thinking so much. I want to get them and breed them and sell them. I'm more collecting them to pursue that, that dream. And that's actually my Instagram handle zoo dreams. If anybody wants to check out some of my animals, um, but uh, that, like that bird snake, you know, it's just another instance where uh, this this kid Gavin, that's always at Tinley Park and, you know, kind of part of the Tinley Park family of people that hang out there. He's been into uh, into rare uh, colubrids from Central American Central America as long as I can remember. He had like the tiger uh, rat snakes and 
all that cool stuff the first time I ever seen him. And uh, he was at my table checking out uh, one of the basin Amazon basin emeralds. And he's like, man, you got to see some of these that I have. And he takes me over there and he shows them to me. He's like, I got this male. And he's like, you could have any of these other females, but he goes, but you can't have that female. No, goes, that's my favorite one. I brought it just to show. And that, that those were his, his fatal last words right there. Why even bring it? Don't even, don't even let people see it. If you really want to keep it. I mean, come on. Duh. Yep. And, yep. and so of course I'm just like, no, there's gotta be, you know, what, what's going to hurt too much, you know, price wise for you not to sell that animal. And, uh, and so I went home with that awesome female and that's that red and gray and almost blue, bluish tinge, uh, animal that, that you see in, on my Facebook and stuff. And, um, also I know you, you mentioned, uh, I, I'm still new to Facebook. Like me and Cody were like really anti Facebook for the longest time. And we're like, mm-hmm. we don't need Facebook. And I mean, I pretty much built my whole reptile career with not having social media. Um, but, uh, I, you were saying like, uh, my, my, business page for facebook is rep tech but uh i i don't really understand how to use the business page as much so <laughs> a lot like it doesn't really make sense to me like how you post okay. with it or how you post to groups with it and stuff so um a lot of my stuff is on my personal page forest fanning and um so if you guys want to see the picture they're talking about that's how you you find that there yeah but, we'll, uh, we'll also toss it up on the uh in the uh npr uh chat uh, that goes on with the show so that yep. people can yeah. take a look at that and uh, check that one out. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Still, uh, still trying to get a hand on the, uh, on the social media thing. I think, like I said, I was, I was good friends and uh, an important person in my life is Brian Barczyk and uh, just seeing the beating he's taken over his career on social media has, uh, has kind of kept, kept me away from it for a long time. So, Man, um, that guy, I'm finally that guy trying to... he can't get a break even when he's he's not even wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. you know what I mean? How dare you be correct? It's like, but wait, I don't, <laughs> what do you want here? Oh, man. Yep. That argument exactly. all the time. Oh, Whew. I know, man. It's Even a lot of my friends, they're just like, they're so passionate about their uh, their hatred for him. But it's, uh, to me, it's always been ridiculous. And, you know, if you... Uh, if you've been around any of the large producers of reptiles or if you, if you're familiar with, with how it really goes, it's like all these people have, uh, have something to say about what, what he's done or what he's doing, what he's doing. And it's like, they have no idea what it's like to, to run an animal collection of that size. And he was the first guy to do it and to show it all, you know, to show his life and, and to be public about it. And, you know, the stress of raising that many animals and the problems that come up with that many animals or, you know, say you get mites and you have thousands of snakes, what it's like to deal with something like that. Or, you know, all these smaller breeders and stuff, they, they run their mouth about how clean their collection is and everything like that. And most of the time they're liars. Most of the time, you know, they're getting RIs or they're, they're having stomatitis or these things run through their collection, but they just when they're talking to you at a show, they just speak with authority that they've never had mites or they've never yeah, had that's RI bullshit. in their collection. You know, they're, they're totally full of shit. Of course. Liars. If you, if you've never yep. met, if you've never had an interaction with mites, congratulations. Yep. You haven't been in it long enough. All right. There yep. you go. That's how it is. And you know what? You're going to have a very rude awakening when you sit there 
and preach that you've never had them rather than learning through admitting that you haven't had them, but you want to learn about everybody else's, like rather than knocking everybody down when they get it, you should be learning about what everybody does to combat the mites so that when you do get it, you don't get caught with your pants around your ankles, but eh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Not, no. not, Go not to keep going on the topic, but I was going to say, it's like, you know, the one thing that I just kind of sit back and watch, but it's like, you know, it's always my friend bought a snake from bar check and <laughs> they had this problem. Yep. It's, it's, you never hear the person that actually had the issue get on Facebook and say, yeah, I bought a snake from him and it came with mites. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, well, wait a minute. It, it's it's almost as elusive as Bigfoot. <laughs> it's the person, yeah. uh, you know, that uh, bought the snake, uh, you know, with the problem. But I don't know. Well, and, guys, and here's, here's the thing like about a nice it. guy to me. Hey, he's always been nice to us, so I that's it. I'm done. That's my judgment yeah. of the guy. He's always <laughs> yeah. been cool with me. So yeah. yeah. What were you gonna say? Yeah, I'm and sorry. I and, no, and I, I understand you guys probably don't want to talk about the the topic because of how much hate and stuff comes in. But for me, you know, you'll no. you'll notice with me, it's like I drop I drop a lot of names and stuff, and it's not because I'm an ass kisser, but it's because the way that I learn and stuff, I I learn hands-on more and and through people and and their experiences and stuff so like you know those are really key important points for me a lot of times is is you know getting to meet this breeder or that breeder and and learning this from from this person or whatever and when you take somebody like brian and Lori barchek who mm. have literally had more animals than you could ever imagine go through their hands you know they the, what you can learn from those people and and the challenges that they've had instead of, you know, to somebody like me, instead of being like, I can't believe he had a snake get sick or I can't believe this or that, or can you believe the way he did this? You know, I'm trying, if, if he did do something wrong, I want to learn from him him, and I want to ask him about it and how I can get through it. And, uh, and, you know, instead of just like wanting to be part of this uh, in vogue crowd, tearing people to shreds, you know, Brian's one of the only guys that, has went out there like I was talking about earlier in the episode and created content for people to get excited about. Like when I, I have volunteers and people come and work for me and stuff. And, uh, and like, I'll try to get them to get into rare species and no matter what they go home, they get on the computer, they find bar check and like, they want to buy ball pythons. And it's like, no, damn it. (laughs) I'm like, no, get into emeralds. I want to sell you an emerald. And, uh, they, you know, but like that power that, that, um, you know, that stuff has to bring people in. We should all be a lot more thankful to that. But the point I'm making is, you know, the, the amount you can learn from some of these people like Brian or, um, you know, just, just, you know, insert name here, um, of a big breeder, Eugene Bissett or Bill Brandt or, um, Mark and Kim Bell, or, you know, all these different guys that go way back. You need to realize, like, you think you're the first that has ever done something or that's had a bunch of this species or that, but these guys have seen it all and they've had Mm -hmm. a lot of problems. And and any of those collections that have, you know, that's producing 30 or 40,000 snakes a year, they have seen it all and they've dealt with it all. And uh, there's a lot you can learn from those guys. And people, people say like Brian's this guy that just doesn't, you know, he doesn't know anything about venomous or he doesn't know this or that. It's like, you know, Robbie would tell me about being at the Michigan shows back in their teens, 
you know, when Brian was a kid and he had, you know, was, had venomous snakes and this and that, and he's an incredible snake handler and he understands breeding and all the technical aspects of this way more than people would ever imagine. I mean, some of my favorite times I can remember are just getting to hear Brian's stories about what it was like back in the day and the birth of this industry and all those guys running around at Ohio and being teenagers hanging out at Mark Bell's house. And, you know, just the fact that all these guys knew each other when they were really young. And it's like, mm-hmm. there's a, a lifetime of experience there. So I just think it's a bummer when, uh, when people just choose to only see the negative and they don't realize who some of the godfathers of our industry are and what they've done for all of us and what we can learn from them, you know? So that's the purpose of that rant. I'm with you. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not nervous about negative feedback. About you know, we had him on the show a, a while back, and yep. yeah, you know, that's what it is. You know, I mean, like I said, he's never done anything to us, so I, yep. I don't know. That's kind of how For I sure. live my thing. You know, it's if the, yep. if you haven't had that negative inner because. I don't know. I guess just with my day job, because I deal with people on a regular basis and people can be assholes, man. And when things all don't the go time, their way, for sure. they can, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you did them wrong when in reality, they're the ones that are wrong. It happens all the time. So, I, yeah. Yep. <laughs> for sure. It's, uh, yeah, no, and it's, it's so easy to like get into that, like, um, that negative, like, oh, you know, the worst part about reptiles is the people and, I hate mm-hmm. it. You know, I agree with that statement with ball pythons. Ball python people are the worst people there are. But, uh, <laughs> oh, you just no. in sight. <laughs> hey, I've been being good lately, all right? I really want props for this. I, I haven't been dipping into my well of hatred. So, you know, come on. That's true, Owen. That is but, uh, true. Thank you. Yeah, yeah but – it's uh it's definitely easy to like get into that like you know oh yeah man i hate the people in this and it, but it's like then in reality like you know all my favorite people in the world are in reptiles and i love the camaraderie and you know like tinley park it's like i'm the first guy there and like the last guy to leave every time like it's it's literally my favorite thing in the world is going to tinley park and oh, uh yeah. and just going going to these new shows and seeing people all over the world that love this stuff as much as we do and and realizing the future and, and how great it can be with, uh, with what we're all doing. It's like, you know, you just gotta, you gotta take the good with the bad, but, uh, you know, Brian's just in particular for me, he's somebody that's done a lot in my life and it's, it's always frustrating seeing, uh, seeing all the BS uh, thrown at him. And, but, uh, but yeah, man, I think, you know, just positivity and, and focusing on, on the good. And when you're buying snakes from people, it's like, you know, if, if all they're doing is trashing all these other breeders and telling you who to be careful of. And like, you feel like, you know, you're getting the inside info. It's like, you know, it's it, a lot of times it's those guys I would really watch out for, you know, mm-hmm. that are just yeah. talking a bunch I, of crap and, uh, yep. Yeah. It's like, uh, there's one in particular that, uh, is just seems to be uh, like just so negative about everything. And, it's a ball python person and it's just like oh yeah brian gets the shit and this guy is put on a pedestal and i'm i i'm just like what <laughs> what mm-hmm. I, I don't without know. without naming any names yeah yeah so. and yeah. i think people can put two and two together but anyway <laughs> before hey, we get in trouble, yeah, I, would... <laughs> <laughs> yeah no and i um, i uh i you know 
when I talk, talk to that person, I get along with them and stuff like it's, it's fine, but it's like you, all it is is you just follow the money mm-hmm. and the guys that are the most ruthless, these guys will do absolutely anything to get the newest animal and to find the newest buyer. And I mean, I've been in the position, you know, I don't know if I'd say lucky enough or unlucky enough to have top projects a few times that people were after and, and have sold a few snakes, you know, for, for a lot of money, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, that you could buy a luxury car for, for one snake and, uh, and the hell that I was put through in those situations and the lies that people would say about me to other, you know, I'd have guys come at me a year later and be like, yeah, they told me, you know, I was going to buy that snake from you, but they told me that it has too small of hemipenes to breed and it won't breed or, or, Wait, <laughs> or they what? said it was they, <laughs> seriously? Uh, yeah. Um, How? Yeah, my, like, how do you know? It, it, whatever. Uh, me, me, and my buddy, buddy Joe, we uh, we were early in on the scaleless head project, and we had a a male scaleless head that was like a proven breeder from the guy I got it from, and he produced like ten clutches from it, and then I got it, and uh, that group of guys told all the buyers that its peens were too small and it didn't produce uh, viable sperm. And uh, we went on to produce we uh, we went on to produce almost like forty scaleless heads from from uh, what we called tiny peens. After that, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'd make that a line. I'd be like the tiny uh, peens line because you know he couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the new morph. <laughs> That's then it would hilarious. Be money, right? But, oh my god. God. But I I can't tell you how good it is to get away from that group of people and to be into the abronia and the chondros and just all these other things and not have yeah just just not have to deal with that anymore and i mean i i used to love ball pythons and now i i literally don't even like them anymore because Mm. of the people because it's like that's all that that's all that matters to them you know like they they're not out there at the shows getting new species at every show and just getting stoked on this and and feeding off the energy of of all these these uh breeders and keepers that are doing this hard work and you know a lot of times like I, I end up with the animals just because I'm so excited at the breeder. Like uh, I was at um, Arlington one time and I met this really cool keeper. Her name's Kita and she keeps toke geckos. And she had like all these giant tame toke geckos all over her head and stuff. She had like a pied one and a blue one and stuff. And like, she just got me so excited about tokes that I had to buy like a big group of tokes from her. And um, <laughs> you know, like that's a, like, you know, you just get excited about stuff and it's like, you know, you just don't want to like get caught in that where it's just like, like I said earlier, you're a calculator cowboy and mm-hmm. you're just chasing oh. that money. You know, it's like, I'm stealing that one. It's, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I do like that. But what, what I found is that with my collection is I've gotten older and I've been in it for like almost close to breeding for like 10 something years now. It's like, I've not my projects are not the whole chasing the next morph, which is what they originally started off as I needed to buy a boy or a girl a year of the newest morph or something like that, that I could pr- produce and get the projects rolling. It's like, I'm more excited about the wild type animals in my collection, potentially breeding than I am about some of my morph projects. It's like, well, the Maclots pythons, please get off their asses and make babies. Like, that's all I want. And, like, the white lips and the olives and all this other crap. It's like, I want them to breed more than some of my carpet pythons. So, it's just that whole shift there. And it makes it more fun for me because it's like, hey, if the Maclots breed, 
all the babies are going to be this price. Why? Because it's a Macross Python. I don't need to worry about a morph or anything like that or a market. It's a Macross Python. That's what it is. So I'm kind of enjoying that more than chasing the morph market and all that game stuff again. So yeah, sure. I'll leave the morph yeah, to Eric. I mean... <laughs> yeah, oh, look. See how he know... does me? <laughs> I... Oh, trust, I... trust me. When, Co- when Cody hears this, he's He's vomiting the whole time because, <laughs> you know, for the past seven for the past seven years, I was telling uh-huh. him how stupid he was for keeping keeping all these uh, venomous snakes and all this stuff. Literally less less than two years ago, he was telling me about Abronia, and I was telling him how stupid I thought Abronia were. <laughs> and now, literally, my, <laughs> so so that sounds so like you literally like he, I know you literally yeah. can't believe it. So get this. So I start getting into Abronia. I'm like going crazy with them. And just, this is kind of like me and Cody. We like to make each other mad and we talk a lot of crap to each other. So, uh, so when I, I got a car and I went to get the license plate for the car and I got Abronia put on the license plate just so I could send Cody a picture. <laughs> and he called me up. He's like, are you kidding me? He's like, you, didn't, you know, like every every time I send him a picture of a new Abronia I got, he's like, you literally said those things are the stupidest lizards you've ever seen like a year ago. But uh, that's Why how I am, you know. Here? Like I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not afraid to shift gears, you know. Like if I, uh, and that's that's just how I am. I mean, a lot of times with people, I meet people and I hate them right away, and then like six months later, they're like my best friends. So it's uh, right. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm not afraid to change, and I'm not afraid to be wrong. I guess that's important. But uh, well, that's cool. Yeah, no, it's yep for sure. So definitely. Um, so we're in overtime now, but there's two things I wanted to make sure that we hit on before. Uh, you know, Owen has his closing questions that he's going to ask. Yes. And, um, but okay. also, I want to go back to this trip to Indo a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. what was it like holding baby marine iguanas? Oh, How cool. cool was that? It was pretty crazy. You know, like just, uh, just the, the amount of rare animals we were seeing. I mean, um, if you look on my Instagram, you can see like right when we got there, I see this monitor. I was like, Brian, what is that? He's like, I don't know. Like neither of us knew we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it because you would never see a baby, uh, Iran desert monitor here in the U S uh, yeah. Baroness Grisius. And, uh, right off the bat, I see that. And I asked the person, I'm like, how much is that? They're like 200 bucks. I was like, Oh my God, I couldn't believe it. But, uh, it, and, uh, everybody there was like, why are you so excited about this thing? And I was like, cause I've never seen one of these. Like, this is one of the nicest baby monitors I've ever seen in my life. And, uh, so there was that. And then, you know, there's plowshare tortoises and there's, uh, there's just all these rare things that I couldn't believe there was parentes and, um, I started to put together an album on the, the RepTech Facebook page from Indonesia, and I'll keep working on it. But uh, you can start to see it. Like the monitor, uh, the monitor part of the the contest was definitely my favorite. I mean, people had so many crazy-looking monitors. You know, big, amazingly tame, beautiful colored croc monitors, and the Salvators oh, were unbelievable. I mean, the, the water monitors, like. They had every single different little island locality you could imagine there, and the colors were all over the place. The colors and the patterns just blew my mind. I mean, you take something like a sulfur and how cool that looks. You know, they Mm -hmm. have stuff like even more extreme than that or more, you know, just dots all over it that are different colors. And, I mean, 
unbelievable um, the work that they've done with those over there and the, the captive specimens that they had. And uh, so, yeah, that, that was cool. The marine iguana, I guess that was a captive-born animal. Um, you know, I guess some people are aware of the pair it came from, and it come, came from Europe, and uh, that that was pretty pretty darn impressive. Um, that is know, cool. A lot of cool sh- shingleback skinks. Like I said, the perennies. They had the fruit-eating monitors there. Um, just a just a ton of great, uh, really tame and and cool-looking monitors and. There's those really nice uh, high-colored uh, um, saltwater crocs that I posted pictures of, and, oh, and the yeah, turtles. Cool. I mean, there's yeah, guys are really into turtles and tortoises over there, and and a lot of them are really wealthy, so they uh, they they've really uh, put together some amazing collections of turtles and tortoises, and uh, they had they have uh, bloodlines there of uh, high yellow radiated tortoises that are really nice that you'd never see here in the states, and. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, there's just uh that was crazy, man. And uh and then at at the competition we met a uh a veterinarian who has a reptile only vet clinic in Jakarta. Her name's what? Julie. Yeah, and uh she was she was the judge for, you know, for the veterinary aspects of the animal. So it's not just uh, how tame the animal is and how great the color is. She is in depth looking at the, you know, how how you know was this animal bred for uh for the right you know health characteristics and you know does it does it have uh, good teeth and all you know this and that so uh but she she was an amazing keeper who she's really passionate about emerald tree boas and so we kind of hit it off with that and i mean her 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 knowledge of all the up to date things going on with emeralds and and chondros and uh all the different viruses and stuff like you know i really like talking about that stuff and she had a ton of great knowledge and she actually had been uh her mentor was doug mater who really uh wrote the wrote the book on uh reptile medicine and surgery and stuff like that he literally wrote the book but um also just like you know saying in general this guy was like you know one of one of the people who really progressed uh reptile medicine and uh surgery to where it is today um and she was lucky enough to find her way all the way from Indonesia over to here, over here and uh, be able to train under Doug Mater in South Florida. So meeting her was really cool. And uh, yeah, they, you know, they just have an awesome reptile scene over there, man. They, I, I literally didn't want to come back. I mean, when I, when I learned you could like keep all this stuff over right. there and then, uh, and then um, just kind of learned about how they don't have to deal with like the animal rights stuff over there and the laws are way more relaxed. And then while we were there, Yuli, the veterinarian, introduced me to a senator, um, Lucky huh. Hakeem, who is also a reptile keeper. Like, he's a guy yes. like our age, and he's a reptile keeper. And so this guy's, like, super cool. And uh, his nephew, uh, Darren, was with him that was really cool, too. And he's a reptile keeper. And Yuli's like, you're going to love this guy. He keeps, like, uh, he keeps uh, false gharials, uh, tomistimas, and... Um, you know, he's, he's got all kinds of cool crocodiles and stuff and Jesus. you just got to meet this guy. So, uh, so we meet this guy and he's like, well, I tell you what, I'll call down to the city zoo in Jakarta, the second largest city in the world. And they'll just open it up just for you guys. And we can just go down there and we'll jump on some Komodos and, you know, <laughs> do all this stuff. Oh, and, wow. uh, oh so, my God. That's yeah. Awesome. So, I mean, literally that's what happened. And, uh, you can see on, uh, you know, another really cool guy uh, that 
that is now one of my good friends and I'm so glad I, I have in my life now is uh, Brian Cusco. And uh, he, he runs a group on uh, Facebook called Positive Pythons. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's how he is. He's like, he's a Hawaii, or he's not Hawaiian, but he lived in Hawaii. He's kind of like a surfer kind of dude. And he is positivity. And he's also an amazing filmmaker. So you guys should check out uh, his his YouTube channel, Triple B TV. And then he oh, has yeah, a that. vlog. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. dude. He's amazing, man. Yeah, he's a amazing good dude. guy. He he really is a good dude, and and I'm so glad that I met him. And uh, and and he's like a really talented filmmaker. So it was really fun on that trip, just uh, going with those guys. And it was kind of by the end of it, it was kind of annoying because they both have vlogs, Brian Barczyk and Brian Cusco. So the whole mm-hmm. time they're like filming us like eating and walking down the stairs, <laughs> every little. Every little thing right, they do, right, and I got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was an experience for me because I'm a really low key person, and I'm like, you know, that's why I'm stuttering so much on this interview because I I'm just pretty nervous and stuff, and I don't really like being on camera. So it was uh, it was kind of an experience just like doing that and being on camera the whole time. But uh, they uh, they shot some great footage at that city zoo and at the contests and all the different places we met, and then uh, and then we also something I was really looking to forward to on the trip was uh meeting uh meeting this guy Keo. And mm-hmm. Keo was really well known early on in ball pythons and he's kept reptiles his whole life and uh he his dad was uh, educated at uh I think Berkeley here in the States and uh and so he speaks like really good English and he was also educated uh here in the States and uh lived in the Bay Area for a long time and um, hung out with like the freedom breeder guys and stuff. And like he, so he, he goes back to the beginning of ball pythons when he was like 14 years old, he bought like a, one of the first pairs of pastels from Bob Clark and reproduced super pastels and like started making big money with those. And that led up all the way to him getting the first mail maker banana from Kevin McCurley. And, uh, he, he produced like, uh, a ton of bananas and made a ton of money with, with that stuff. And he really loves ball python and, ball python so i got to meet him finally at the show i've wanted to meet him for a long time and uh we had a great time on the trip just like reminiscing about all the funny old ball python drama and uh just bringing up funny names from early on in ball pythons people that aren't around anymore like uh just like there's just so many funny things early on in ball pythons that Mm -hmm. we were joking about but he's also like one of the greatest turtle collectors in the entire world so um and i really love turtles like i'm I'm new to turtles in the sense of I don't know a ton about how to raise raise all these different kinds, and I don't know I can't look at all of them and and know what species they are and stuff like that yet. But uh, he does, so I was really stoked to get to feed off of uh, Keo's turtle knowledge, and and uh, we all have to thank Keo a lot for uh, he basically put us up and showed us around that entire trip, and uh, he took us to Bali. Um, me and him got to like, uh, Barcheck and Cusco one day went to the retic cave. I didn't want to go because, uh, it just, it sounded like it was going to suck. I could just tell from them talking about it that, uh, it was like a really long walk down into this sketchy village. And then you had to go down to this cave that was filled with bat poop and you might see like some retics. And I was like, I don't really want to do that. So me and Keo went snorkeling yeah. and <laughs> yeah. so me and Keo went snorkeling on like a private boat in, uh, in Bali for a day. And that was pretty sweet. Um, but I'm, I'm sorry if I'm getting off track. I'm just trying to like go. No, through no, the trip you're cool, and, man. Uh, no, you're good, dude. This is awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm kind of jealous um, of it. It looks like a freaking great time, and the show looks – the animals at the show are looking freaking awesome. It was crazy, man. It was crazy, and it was so cool. Like I said, they, like, had all these little crews with their own T-shirts, and they all show up together trying to win the contest and show off their animals. And uh, and it was just so great connecting with the people there, and they just – they love their animals and their collections so much. And it was funny, too, because, you know, like – I didn't know what to expect. It was my first time going overseas. So I thought maybe like, um, it was, they, they didn't really have a lot of money or maybe like things sucked over there or something, but it really didn't. I mean, everybody there seemed really happy. They all seemed like they were pretty well uh, taken care of. And, uh, it's just funny. Like there's a few animals that I could have brought back legally that I wanted. And, mm-hmm. you know, some 14 year old kid would be standing there with them. And, uh, and you know, I'm like, well, what would it take to buy this animal? Like, you know, what's your yeah. price? And just having a 14 year old be like, there is no price. No, you know, I was like, <laughs> damn, damn you know, like, I was like, damn. And like that happened several times. And I mean, people were like, no, I don't care if you'll give me 10 grand or whatever. Like you can't have it. And, uh, <laughs> so, so that was funny. But, uh, the people in the country as a whole just like seem so happy and friendly. Um, way better than Germany. I mean, the people over there were, were pretty rude and uh I don't, I don't think as highly of europe as i do uh pe- the people in europe like it's funny like i i was asking a bunch of guys about the show like at the hotel and they're like oh ham sucks this show sucks like there's nothing here you're not even gonna like it and i go to the show the next day and i'm like god what a bunch of arrogant pricks like you know this is like the most amazing show ever and you know here they are uh you know with their pinky in the air, you know, sipping their little drink, like, oh, it's a terrible show. You're not going to like this, you know? And it's like, you guys have the biggest reptile show in the world. This is awesome. But, right. uh, yeah, but uh, Indonesia, man, I just, I love the people there, and I I want to go back so bad. Um, the only bad part was uh, I pulled from every connection I could to try to get into the, the chondro, um, the breeding farms over there, and just got stonewalled. Really? I mean, they absolutely will not let you visit those places. Like, I guess they used to, and people got robbed, or people stole this connection or did that connection, but it was pretty frustrating being into condros for this long and get over there. And, I mean, after, you know, I, I talked to Rico about it a lot, about his trip over there, and he was just telling me about all the phenotypes and all the cool things he's seen, and... uh I was just looking forward to that so much. So it was a bummer not being able to go to those places, but uh, I hope next time that uh, I can make it happen. But uh, that was a little frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I, I could see that being that close to uh, the farms and not being able to get into them. That would kind of suck. Yeah. So. Well, and they don't um, – they're not allowed to keep them anymore either. So um, – like we were at an underground bird market. Um, that, that experience is on film. The Condro's not, but, uh, we were asking to see them, you know, and there were some reptiles at this bird market. I mean, this bird market's like, you know, damn it. It's, you know, it felt like you're in the mall of America underground in this sweaty, nasty, uh, sketchy bird market. And there's just birds everywhere. There's, I mean, there was eagles and stuff at this market, oh, like God. every bird you could possibly imagine. It was pretty nuts. Um, but, uh, this guy's like, here, come through here. And we like, you know, go through a, a one little sketchy room into another sketchy room. And, you know, he pulls it out. Like he's got like, you know, some kind of uh, illegal drugs or something like that. And he's like, here, 
here's a chondro, you know, <laughs> like we get to see this chondro and it's like a giant, it was like a Jayapura type or something like that. And I held it and it was pretty cool. Um, so there was that chondro and then there was a zoo in Bali that had some nice chondros. Like they had like maybe six, uh, six different cages. And it was a really, really nice zoo. If you ever get to get over to Bali, it's, I think it's called the Bali reptile park. And it was a really nice little zoo. Um, Awesome. But yeah, that was that was pretty crazy. I guess they're just you know trying to protect them, so that's why uh, why they're not allowed to keep them and uh, regulations are tight on them right now. But uh, yeah, my next trip over there, I'm trying to plan another trip where uh, where I'm going to go up towards like Kofiao and uh, Raja Am Ampod, I think is how you say it, is where I'm planning my next trip, and uh, then I'll be able to hopefully find some some condros in the wild and stuff and. It, uh, this, this trip was just more like there were so many awesome collections to see and stuff like that where, uh, where it wasn't really like going out in the jungle and, uh, and hiking so much. I, I definitely dressed like I thought I was going out in the jungle. I showed up with all the gear and the hats and the mosquito spray and everything. <laughs> you wandered around a city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty funny. That is but, pretty uh, good. But, yeah, they had a lot of, you guys would have loved the scrubs and, and all the Morelia too. There was a lot of cool stuff at the contest. I'll try to dig up some pictures of that. Please do, because that sounds awesome. I, I would. Uh, I like that we had that. Um, uh, I like that we had that like best in show at ICAST, and I would kind of like it if, you know, some reptile yep. shows kind of did that for other things like that. You know, and the lizards you're for showing sure. me, they look. A lot of the lizards that are in the the, the pictures that you have over there. Um, mm -hmm. they're healthier looking and better looking than half the lizards I've seen at reptile shows, you know, here. And it's like, Jesus. So, you know, apparently they do take pride in that kind of stuff over there and, uh, just gorgeous animals. So, and they had, yeah. And it's, it's not just because stuff. they're keeping them in their backyards either. They have them, nah. like they were showing me pictures of their setups and, and, uh, very skilled keepers that uh that put a lot into it and because they're not just trying to keep tons of animals you know you realize that um when you build a larger collection that the larger your collection gets you know the you get you're not you can't take as good a care of your animals so if you find a happy medium and you keep it at a reasonable size you know i, th I think that's why is like you know they just loved this monitor and then they have this turtle and this and that you know it's not like they're they're keeping tons of stuff. And I mean, you can keep a lot of reptiles very, you know, you can keep them very well and healthy and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if, if you're dedicated and, and if you learn the skills and, uh, and you're willing to sacrifice what you have to sacrifice to keep a large collection, but you just have to understand what that means. And, uh, and, you know, not, uh, not be making mistakes, not, not be overheating stuff or not, you know, skip that quarantine step or, uh, or just, you know, do this or do that, you know, like that's uh, kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. You know, I think uh, it was just really cool seeing them uh, have such healthy animals and be so dedicated to what they were doing. Really got does, me excited. It does definitely seem like uh, people in the United States feel that uh, reptiles can be the cheaper pet alternative, where it's yep. almost like, I think my dog is cheaper than my reptiles at this point, but, you know, and... <laughs> yep. uh, just seems it just seems like they'd be the cheaper alternative but you know whatever but anyway for us we're gonna um start closing it out now but we do have the questions that we ask everybody all our guests on here 
And there can be a little difficult questions because it makes you have to pick and choose between reptiles and stuff. So first question is, if you could own any animal without legality or price being an issue, what would it be and why? Mm, let me think here. If I could own any animal, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those things where they, where they all, you know, that, that would be different, uh, every month for me um <laughs> right <laughs> right that's a little right dangerous now, yeah. Say, <laughs> yeah right right now i would say uh i man that's really hard because i don't know how to pronounce it but it's it's abronia ornolasti or something like that it's like starts with an o okay and um they're they're like some of them are like just jet solid red Okay. Awesome. And I really want one of those. So uh, that would be probably on the top of my list or uh, Kuora trifasciata cyclornata. Um, I have the golden coins right now, but the, uh, the cyclornata locality, um, they're like, they're like solid red shell and they're really awesome. And uh, it's probably like one of the rarest turtles, if not the rarest turtle in the entire world. And uh, I really want to get one of those, I guess uh, there's a guy here. Uh, John from Albinos Unlimited, he has some, and I really yeah. want to get some from him. I just, I, I got to sell my house or something to be able to get them. So <laughs> that's that. Just to go on a quick forest rant, though, like yeah. that's one thing that's so funny about these ball python guys with their huge egos, and yeah. like they think all the money's in ball pythons. You know how many turtle deals I've seen go down in the past year that are for like twenty five, thirty five, fifty thousand dollars a piece, and, and there's all kinds of them going like the the amount of money that some of these rare species are going for because they're so rare you're never going to have the chance in your life to get them again so people will pay what it takes to get them you know so that's just a side side point of how awesome the the uh, market for rare and endangered species is um and of course you know um these are legal specimens i'm talking about too right um okay next question all right if you can go herping anywhere Mm -hmm in the anywhere on the planet where would you want to go and what would you be hoping to find oh boy um i i would like to go to the the cloud forests in in the chiapas or guatemala or something me me and uh cody and and uh pia and desiree our significant others we're trying to plan a trip to do that where we can look for horda malvarezi we can look for all the abronia and then uh, Cody's like passion right now is uh, Bothriechus, uh, mm-hmm. like the the rare palm vipers like uh, Rallii and Marchi, and uh, and he really wants bicolor. They're like this really awesome one that's solid blue. So if we could go there and find all our favorite Central American herps, I think that would be pretty awesome. That would be that would be cool. So, and uh, For sure. what is your next? Uh, reptile purchase going to be? What's that thing that you're currently hunting down right now? An animal? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah. Let's I was going to say more, more buildings, you know. More buildings. Like more buildings. All right. Well, there's that. But, you know, then yeah. now the animal. Yeah. Yeah. This this point in the game, like it's the, the infrastructure, you know, to do things right. Like I've spent every last penny I have. I've lived in my living room while I'm trying to remodel the house, but I never end up remodeling the house because I'm trying to have, you know, 
a facility that's up to date, you know, whether it's my feeders, I have an escape proof facility that has all the electrical and conduit and um, all the walls are covered with metal and temperature control and stuff like that, or getting a forklift or getting more freezers or new building for my reptile. So like all my money mainly has to go towards, uh, towards that right now. But uh, my next, my next reptile purchase, I would say, I mean, it, you know, my, Desiree tells me all the time there better not be one or it's over, you know. So I hope uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, ha- I'll have to I'll have to sneak something in there. It'll probably be more bronia, you know. I just love bronia, so <laughs> more more um, bronia. Let's just go with yeah. that. Yeah, bronia. I I am obsessed, man. They're my favorite reptile I've ever kept. They're they're small. They're manageable. They have you know I know personality is a silly word to use, but I feel like they have a ton of personality and. uh I, I just love them, man. I just, I really like keeping them. And uh, so I feel like for a while I'm going to be, and it's hard to find good legal specimens and stuff. You know, I have some of the rarer species like uh, Bronia Martin Del Campo I have with 3177 documents. And, um, you know, so like just trying to find the good legal specimens of these, these rare Bronias is where I'm going to put. And then um, I'll also continue to be chasing like the Kuora uh, Asian box turtles, like, McCordai and Panai and uh, Beretti and Galbifrons and stuff. I'll be trying to find legal specimens of those as well that um, will take a long time to save up for. That's awesome. So I, I what, what do about, like, was that good? Oh, uh, what, what's your guys' next purchase? Well, Eric actually dropped off. He and I have been talking on the uh, thing. He lost his internet connection, so he's done. It's just me. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. Um, my nice. Next- my next purchase is I got to get Timor pythons. So um, I got to get those guys going again over here. So uh, I'll do some Timors and then uh, I have to get a pair of Cebus. So those will be my two purchases yeah. this year. So I I have females only of both of those. And my Sabu is, that's what you said for the second one, right? Sabu? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I love, I love Sabus and, uh, I've always loved him, and um, I haven't. You know KJ? Yeah, I know KJ. I, KJ, I annoy KJ yeah. all the time. He had he took my Macaulay Python boy this year uh, or last year and was going to try to breed him, but like they got he got down there and I guess they just stared at each other. So it's like great. Yeah. So now he's come home. So yeah. So so KJ actually used to work at my rodent uh, place. He he'd come and help out at my uh, rodent facility down in Florida. Nice. This was a long time ago. So he's been a friend for a while, and uh, he's such a cool kid. He uh, he actually gave me his male Sabu Python to breed to my female, and she of course ate him. So uh, oh my god! So that, that was, <laughs> yeah, I guess it I guess it happens pretty often with Sabus. Oh. Um, oh. So uh, they they locked up and everything. I don't know if she's grabbing or not, but uh, that was and it was the most evil Python I've ever got. That's why KJ hated the thing. It just it was crazy, but. Uh, they bred a few times and then she, uh, she ate him. And then I've had a Timor Python I've raised up since uh, a baby seven or eight years ago. And, uh, I think you like scrubs and stuff. So you like evil snakes that spray uh, urate yeah. all over. <laughs> so you'll, you'll be yeah. great with it. But I, with this female, I was like, I don't ever want to reproduce those. Like why? Like, <laughs> I don't like want just, to make more last, of you. <laughs> last week I moved it to a bigger enclosure in a different building. It sprayed urates right in my face. Like directly in my face. It's like, it was I hate horrible. You. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I hate this snake. Why? So uh, uh, <laughs> it was pretty funny. 
KJ KJ actually sent me uh, one of his Timors when he found out he had like two girls. So yeah, I have one of his, and now I'm like, I gotta get more. I got I gotta get a boy. I got because I hate I hate having the 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 quintessential. Why are you here, you lone snake? You it's like give me something else to go with you. So I know you're not. You can eventually maybe serve a purpose. So I I just gotta get more Timors and. Uh, the Savus is that they're one of the only things that I'm missing out of Liasis. So, like, I got the waters, I got the olives, I got the max. I need Savus and Duns, and then I'll call it a day. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, yeah. for sure. Did, didn't KJ get Duns? Uh, KJ, because I, I was dumb enough to find a Duns python. And yeah. it was labeled as a male. And then I got on this wonderful program that we're on currently. And said, I got a, I yep. saw a Duns Python. And the second the words came out of my mouth, KJ just blew me up, like, private message on Facebook. Like, <laughs> he just kept going. So I'm like, all right, fine, here you go. He calls them up, and they sex it for him, because it was labeled male all over their thing. They sex it for him. It yep. sexes as a female, and he buys it. And I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I probably should have just, <laughs> just done that. But, you know, that's kind of, I think that's why he sent me the team more. But, you know, it's like the good job for let, helping me get a Duns, you idiot. So, you know, that was how that one went down. But uh, for sure, I do love that Python of his that he posts up. I hope to, hope he gets success with that at some point or some of the other guys who are working with Duns in the country kind of produce. So, yeah, we'll see yeah, how that goes. He's working with Ryan Young on that project. I yeah. Think, right? uh, yeah, which, yeah. again, it's like. Oh, and you moron, why didn't you just buy it and call Ryan and be like, hey, I'm sending you a Duns Python. He wouldn't have said no. <laughs> so, you know, that was, again, my, yep. my, next time I find something, I'm just going to buy it. So, For sure. No, that's, at least it went to somebody good, though. He's, you know, he's, yeah. I know he's, uh, he li- likes you guys' show more than anybody, and uh, he loves rare and cool pythons, and he's a good kid. Um, yeah, so. That's cool. Is there any more, uh, more well, questions? No, no more questions. But the last thing I would tell you to do is toss out any contact information, anything you want. If people are looking for you, want to get in contact with you, either talk Bronia, turtles, snakes, or anything like that, Definitely. you know, how would they get in touch with you? <clears throat> so um, my zoo, my Instagram is Zoo Dreams, Zoo Dreams, um, just like it sounds. Um, my Facebook is Forest Fanning, Forest with two R's. F-A-N-N-I-N-G. Um, then uh, my wife, Desiree, she's got an Instagram. It's Desiree, D-E-S-I-R-E-E-A-M-1. And she puts up, um, you know, a lot of stuff on, on Instagram as well. Um, if you want to contact me about animals for sales, it's uh, sales at reptechusa.com. Uh, so reptech, R-E-P-T-E-K, USA.com. Um so reach out to me or Desiree uh, if you if you actually want a response or professional communication. I uh, recommend you try to get a hold of Desiree because I'm very hard to get a hold of and frustrate people really bad because <laughs> I'm uh, caring for animals most of the time. So um, that's uh, that's the truth of the matter there. <laughs> I love but, that. uh, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Definitely. Awesome. Um, or or call any of my friends and and just complain to them about how you can't get a hold of me, like uh, Cody Bartolini or Joseph Perkins, just reach out to those guys and uh, just tell them how you can't get a hold of me. So 
Um, you know, that's <laughs> I, I like when people do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. And then they, they tell you to call this person. All right. Well, yep, awesome. exactly. Dole yep. Forrest, thanks for coming on. I mean, with with the way you are built and all this stuff you got going on, I, I assume you'll end up coming back on with us and chatting us up about other stuff. Or we'll just end up doing an entire Bronia show and we'll just let you talk for two hours about how much you love your little lizards and, you know, <laughs> you just pack That's that into I an episode. That's all I want to do, man. That's all I want to do is talk about exactly. those. And I, I, yeah, I post pictures of my Bronias and they get like two likes and then I post a picture of a chondro and it gets like a thousand and I'm like, damn why? it, you know, why doesn't anybody care about the Bronia? I'm like, but no, I'd, I'd be, uh, I'd be really happy to come back and, uh, I look forward to seeing you guys. It's, it's funny, like you said about iCast. You, I, you guys probably don't remember me, but I remember you guys were sitting at the table, and I was, uh, I, I, I was the rodent vendor at that show. Okay. And I literally brought, I literally brought enough rodents um, for the entire East Coast, and uh, <laughs> and nobody really bought any rodents. That was pretty funny, but uh, I was, I was mainly hanging out uh, behind the scenes. Me and Marshall Mendez hung out most of the night one night, and. Uh, just hanging out with those guys, but uh, hope I hear there's rumors of another iCast. So I, I hope. Uh, well, yep. I hope to see you guys there. And uh, also, if you guys, do you guys drive to Tinley or do you fly? We are driving to Tinley, and that's the thing is we're driving with Buddy Bishemi this year. So you best believe okay. the sh- the post Tinley show, I'm gonna have the lowdown on this new iCast because I'm just gonna like dog him the entire, you know, ten hours to Chicago about this thing. So yeah, for sure. I'm I'm in Indianapolis, which is on the way for a lot of East Coast people. Mm-hmm. They're going to Tinley. So um, on Thursday, I'll be having like an open house uh, barbecue kind of hanging out. So if you guys nice. are able to uh, to make it by my place and want to see my collection on the way to Chicago, or if anybody that's listening is also making that journey and they would like to come and check out my place, just uh, hit me up. Cool. Yeah, I'll, uh, we'll see what we got planned and see how many uh... – where where we are in the route, but definitely we'll see if we can take you up on that. We totally will. So yeah, awesome. All right. Well, once again, Forrest, sounds thanks good. for coming on, and we'll catch up with you soon. All right. We'll see you at Tinley. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Owen. Yep. Have a good one. All right, everybody. That's the end of the show. Like I said, Eric has been cut off. He's gone. He's left you. He's no more. He has ceased to be. Um, so I am going to shut it out for Eric. It is ebmorelia.com. You can find him on Facebook as well as Instagram. You can also go to moreliapythonradio.com, which is the link for the show. It's also linked through Eric's uh, website. Uh, Morelia Python Radio is also on Facebook. Go ahead and give us a like over there. You can also go to the Morelia Pick of the Week and uh, give a like over there. You can post up pictures and questions of your animals. Uh, for more in-depth discussions, we suggest the Carpet Python discussion page. And for sales, of course, there are numerous uh, web pages and Facebook pages for that. Just none of those can be posted on the Morelia Pick of the Week. Uh, for myself, you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. You can also look up rogue reptiles at facebook.com. The next show that I have currently that I'm attending will be not this Saturdays, but the following Saturdays, Oaks Reptile Show in uh, uh, Oaks, Pennsylvania. And I'll be there just to grab food, but I can also deliver animals uh, if need be. The next show that Eric and I will be vending will, of course, be the October Tinley Park Reptile Show. We hope to see everybody there. Uh, 
and it's going to be a good time. Uh, next week, no idea what's happening next week. Eric will tell us next week. Uh, also, if you have any questions, please uh, hit myself or Eric up. If you have any guest suggestions, please contact myself or Eric. That's all we have for you guys tonight. So we'll say thank you for tuning in, and we hope to catch you all next week for some more Morelia Python radio. Good night. <laughs>